At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 4 the Cruelty, Follies, and Murder of Commodus Part 1 Contents The Cruelty, Follies, and Murder of Commodus Election of Pertinax His Attempts to Reform the State His Assassination by the Praetorian Guards The mildness of Marcus, which the rigid discipline of the Stoics was unable to eradicate, formed at the same time the most amiable and the only defective part of his character. His excellent understanding was often deceived by the unsuspecting goodness of his heart. Artful men who study the passions of princes and conceal their own approached his person in the disguise of philosophic sanctity and acquired riches and honours by affecting to despise them. His excessive indulgence to his brother his wife and his son, exceeded the bounds of private virtue and became a public injury by the example and consequences of their vices. Faustina, the daughter of Pius and wife of Marcus, has been as much celebrated for her gallantries as for her beauty. The grave simplicity of the philosopher was ill-calculated to engage her wanton levity or to fix that unbounded passion for variety, which often discovered personal merit in the meanest of mankind. The Cupid of the ancients was, in general, a very sensual deity, and the armours of an empress, as they exact on her side the plainest advances, are seldom susceptible of much sentimental delicacy. Marcus was the only man in the empire who seemed ignorant or insensible of the irregularities of Faustina, which, according to the prejudices of every age, reflected some disgrace on the injured husband. He promoted several of her lovers to posts of honour and profit, and during a connection of thirty years invariably gave her proofs of the most tender confidence, and of a respect which ended not with her life. In his meditations he thanks the gods who had bestowed on him a wife so faithful, 
so gentle and of such a wonderful simplicity of manners. The obsequious senate, at his earnest request, declared her a goddess. She was represented in her temples with the attributes of Juno, Venus, and Ceres, and it was decreed that, on the day of their nuptials, the youth of either sex should pay their vows before the altar of their chaste patroness. The monstrous vices of the sun have cast a shade on the purity of the father's virtues. It has been objected to Marcus that he sacrificed the happiness of millions to a fond partiality for a worthless boy, and that he chose a successor in his own family rather than in the Republic. Nothing, however, was neglected by the anxious father and by the men of virtue and learning whom he summoned to his assistance to expand the narrow mind of young Commodus, to correct his growing vices, and to render him worthy of the throne for which he was designed. But the power of instruction is seldom of much efficacy, except in those happy dispositions where it is almost superfluous. The distasteful lesson of a grave philosopher was in a moment obliterated by the whisper of a profligate favourite and Marcus himself blasted the fruits of his laboured education by admitting his son, at the age of fourteen or fifteen, to a full participation of the imperial power. He lived but four years afterwards, but he lived long enough to repent a rash measure which raised the impetuous youth above the restraint of reason and authority. Most of the crimes which disturb the internal peace of society are produced by the restraints which the necessary but unequal laws of property have imposed on the appetites of mankind, by confining to a few the possession of those objects that are coveted by many. Of all our passions and appetites, the love of power is the most imperious and unsociable nature, since the pride of one man requires the submission of the multitude. In the tumult of civil discord, the laws of society lose their force, and their place is seldom supplied by those of humanity. The ardour of contention, the pride of victory, the despair of success, the memory of past injuries, and the fear of future dangers, all contribute to inflame the mind, and to silence the voice of pity. From such motives, Almost every page of history has been stained with civil blood, but these motives will not account for the unprovoked cruelties of Commodus, who had nothing to wish and everything to enjoy. The beloved son of Marcus succeeded to his father amidst the acclamations of the senate and armies, and when he ascended the throne, the happy youth saw round him neither competitor to remove nor enemies to punish. In this calm, elevated station, it was surely natural that he should prefer the love of mankind to their detestation, the mild glories of his five predecessors, to the ignominious fate of Nero and Domitian. Yet Commodus was not, as he had been represented, a tiger born with an insatiate thirst of human blood, and capable, from his infancy, of the most inhuman actions. Nature had formed him of a weak rather than a wicked disposition. His simplicity and timidity rendered him the slave of his attendants, 
who gradually corrupted his mind. His cruelty, which at first obeyed the dictates of others, degenerated into habit, and at length became the ruling passion of his soul. Upon the death of his father, Commodus found himself embarrassed with the command of a great army, and the conduct of a difficult war against the Quadi and the Marcomanni. The servile and profligate youths whom Marcus had banished soon regained their station and influence about the new emperor. They exaggerated the hardships and dangers of a campaign in the wild countries beyond the Danube, and they assured the indolent prince that the terror of his name and the arms of his lieutenants would be sufficient to complete the conquest of the dismayed barbarians, or to impose such conditions as were more advantageous than any conquest. By a dexterous application to his sensual appetites, they compared the tranquillity, the splendour, the refined pleasures of Rome, with the tumult of a Pannonian camp, which afforded neither leisure nor materials for luxury. Commodus listened to the pleasing advice, but whilst he hesitated between his own inclination and the awe which he still retained for his father's counsellors, the summer insensibly collapsed, and his triumphal entry into the capital was deferred till the autumn. His graceful person, popular address, and imagined virtues attracted the public favour. The honourable peace which he had recently granted to the barbarians diffused a universal joy. His impatience to revisit Rome was fondly ascribed to the love of his country, and his dissolute course of amusements was faintly condemned in a prince of nineteen years of age. During the three first years of his reign, the forms and even the spirit of the old administration were maintained by those faithful counsellors to whom Marcus had recommended his son, and for whose wisdom and integrity Commodus still entertained a reluctant esteem. The young prince and his profligate favourites revelled in all the licence of sovereign power. But his hands were yet unstained with blood, and he had even displayed a generosity of sentiment, which might perhaps have ripened into solid virtue. A fatal incident decided his fluctuating character. One evening, as the emperor was returning to the palace, through a dark and narrow portico in the amphitheatre, an assassin, who waited his passage, rushed upon him with a drawn sword, loudly exclaiming, The Senate sends you this. The menace prevented the deed. The assassin was seized by the guards, and immediately revealed the authors of the conspiracy. It had been formed not in the state, but within the walls of the palace. Lucilla, the emperor's sister and widow of Lucius Verus, impatient of the second rank, and jealous of the reigning empress, had armed the murderer against her brother's life. She had not ventured to communicate the black design to her second husband, Claudius Pompeius, a senator of distinguished merit and unshaken loyalty, but among the crowd of her lovers, for she imitated the manners of Faustina, she found men of desperate fortunes and wild ambition, who were prepared to serve her more violent as well as her tender passions. The conspirators experienced the rigour of justice, and the abandoned princess was punished first with exile and afterwards 
with death. But the words of the assassin sunk deep into the mind of Commodus, and left an indelible impression of fear and hatred against the whole body of the Senate. Those whom he had dreaded as importunate ministers he now suspected as secret enemies. The Delators, a race of men discouraged and almost extinguished under the former reigns, again became formidable, as soon as they discovered that the Emperor was desirous of finding disaffection and treason in the Senate. That assembly, whom Marcus had ever considered as the great council of the nation, was composed of the most distinguished of the Romans, and distinction of every kind soon became criminal. The possession of wealth stimulated the diligence of the informers. Rigid virtue implied a tacit censure of the irregularities of Commodus. Important services implied a dangerous superiority of merit, and the friendship of the father always ensured the aversion of the son. Suspicion was equivalent to proof, trial to condemnation. The execution of a considerable senator was attended with the death of all who might lament or revenge his fate. And when Commodus had once tasted human blood, he became incapable of pity or remorse. In those innocent victims of tyranny, none died more lamented than the two brothers of the Quintilian family, Maximus and Condianus, whose fraternal love had saved their names from oblivion and endeared their memory to posterity. Their studies and their occupations, their pursuits and their pleasures were still the same. In the enjoyment of a great estate, they never admitted the idea of a separate interest. Some fragments are now extant of a treatise which they composed in common, and in every action of life it was observed that their two bodies were animated by one soul. The Antonines, who valued their virtues and delighted in their union, raised them in the same year to the consulship, and Marcus afterwards entrusted to their joint care the civil administration of Greece and a great military command, in which they obtained a signal victory over the Germans. The kind cruelty of Commodus united them in death. The tyrant's rage, after having shed the noblest blood of the Senate, at length recoiled on the principal instrument of his cruelty. Whilst Commodus was immersed in blood and luxury, he devolved the detail of the public business on Perennis, a servile and ambitious minister who had obtained his post by the murder of his predecessor, but who possessed a considerable share of vigour and ability. By acts of extortion and the forfeited estates of the nobles, sacrificed to his avarice, he had accumulated an immense treasure. The Praetorian guards were under his immediate command, and his son, who already discovered a military genius, was at the head of the Illyrian legions. Perennis aspired to the empire, or what in the eyes of Commodus amounted to the same crime, he was capable of aspiring to it, had he not been prevented, surprised, and put to death. The fall of a minister is a very trifling incident in the general history of the empire, but it was hastened by an extraordinary circumstance which proved how much the nerves of discipline were already relaxed. The legions of Britain, contented with the administration of Perennis, formed a deputation of fifteen hundred select men, 
with instructions to march to Rome and lay their complaints before the emperor. These military petitioners, by their own determined behaviour, by inflaming the divisions of the guards, by exaggerating the strength of the British army, and by alarming the fears of Commodius, exacted and obtained the minister's death, as the only redress of their grievances. This presumption of a distant army, and their discovery of the weakness of government, was a sure presage of the most dreadful convulsions. The negligence of the public administration was betrayed soon afterwards by a new disorder, which arose from the smallest beginning. A spirit of desertion began to prevail among the troops, and the deserters, instead of seeking their safety in flight or concealment, infested the highways. Maternus, a private soldier of a daring boldness above his station, collected these bands of robbers into a little army, set open the prisons, invited the slaves to assert their freedom, and plundered with impunity the rich and defenceless cities of Gaul and Spain. The governors of the provinces, who had long been the spectators, and perhaps the partners, of his depredations, were at length roused from their supine indolence by the threatening commands of the emperor. Maternus found that he was encompassed and foresaw that he must be overpowered. A great effort of despair was his last resource. He ordered his followers to disperse, to pass the Alps in small parties and various disguises, and to assemble at Rome during the licentious tumult of the festival of Sibylle. To murder Commodus and to ascend the vacant throne was the ambition of no vulgar robber. His measures were so ably concerted that his concealed troops already filled the streets of Rome. The envy of an accomplice discovered and ruined this singular enterprise in a moment when it was ripe for execution. Suspicious princes often promote the last of mankind from a vain persuasion that those who have no dependence, except on their favour, will have no attachment except to the person of their benefactor. Cleander, the successor of Perennis, was a Phrygian by birth, of a nation over whose stubborn but servile temper blows only could prevail. He had been sent from his native country to Rome in the capacity of a slave. As a slave he entered the imperial palace, rendered himself useful to his master's passions, and rapidly ascended to the most exalted station which a subject could enjoy. His influence over the mind of Commodus was much greater than that of his predecessor, for Cleander was devoid of any ability or virtue which could inspire the emperor with envy or distrust. Avarice was the reigning passion of his soul, and the great principle of his administration. The rank of consul, of patrician, of senator, was exposed to public sale, and it would have been considered as disaffection, if any one had refused to purchase these empty and disgraceful honours with the greatest part of his fortune. In the lucrative provincial employments, the minister shared with the government the spoils of the people. The execution of the laws was penal and arbitrary. A wealthy criminal might obtain not only the reversal of the sentence by which he was justly condemned, but might likewise inflict whatever punishment he pleased on the accuser, the witnesses, and the judge. 
By these means Cleander, in the space of three years, had accumulated more wealth than had ever yet been possessed by any freedman. Commodus was perfectly satisfied with the magnificent presents which the artful courtier laid at his feet in the most seasonable moments. To divert the public envy, Cleander, under the emperor's name, erected baths, porticos, and places of exercise for the use of the people. He flattered himself that the Romans, dazzled and amused by his apparent liberality, would be less affected by the bloody scenes which were daily exhibited, that they would forget the deaths of Pyrrhus, a senator to whose superior merit the late emperor had granted one of his daughters, and that they would forgive the execution of Arius Antoninus, the last representative of the name and virtues of the Antonines. The former, with more integrity than prudence, had attempted to disclose to his brother-in-law the true character of Cleander. An equitable sentence pronounced by the latter, when proconsul of Asia, against a worthless creature of the favourite, proved fatal to him. After the fall of Perennis, the traitors of Commodus had, for a short time, assumed the appearance of a return to virtue. He repealed the most odious of his acts, loaded his memory with the public execration, and ascribed to the pernicious counsels of that wicked minister all the errors of his inexperienced youth. But his repentance lasted only thirty days, and under Cleander's tyranny the administration of Perennis was often regretted. End of chapter 4, part 1 Recorded by Gesine in January 2007「four, part two of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire volume one this is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org pestilence and famine contributed to fill up the measure of the calamities of Rome the first could only be imputed to the just indignation of the gods but a monopoly of corn supported by the riches and power of the minister, was considered as the immediate cause of the second. The popular discontent, after it had long circulated in whispers, broke out in the assembled circus. The people quitted their favorite amusements for the more delicious pleasure of revenge, rushed in crowds towards a palace in the suburbs, one of the emperor's retirements, and demanded, with angry clamors, the head of the public enemy. Cleander, who had commanded the Praetorian guards, ordered a body of cavalry to sally forth and disperse the seditious multitude. The multitude fled with precipitation towards the city. Several were slain, and many more were trampled to death. But when the cavalry entered the streets, their pursuit was checked by a shower of stones and darts from the roofs and windows of the houses. The foot guards, who had been long jealous of the prerogatives and insolence of the Praetorian cavalry, embraced the party of the people. The tumult became a regular engagement, and threatened a general massacre. The Praetorians at length gave way, oppressed with numbers, and the tide of popular fury returned with redoubled violence against the gates of the palace, where Commodus lay dissolved in luxury, and alone unconscious of the civil war. It was death to approach his person with unwelcome news. He would have perished in this supine security had not two women, 
his eldest sister Fidilla and Marcia, the most favorite of his concubines, ventured to break into his presence. Bathed in tears, and with disheveled hair, they threw themselves at his feet, and, with all the pressing eloquence of fear, discovered to the affrighted emperor the crimes of the minister, the rage of the people, and the impending ruin which in a few minutes would burst over his palace and person. Commodus started from his dream of pleasure, and commanded that the head of Cleander should be thrown out to the people. The desired spectacle instantly appeased the tumult, and the son of Marcus might even yet have regained the affection and confidence of his subjects. But every sentiment of virtue and humanity was extinct in the mind of Commodus. Whilst he thus abandoned the reins of empire to these unworthy favorites, he valued nothing in sovereign power except the unbounded license of indulging his sensual appetites. His hours were spent in a seraglio, with three hundred beautiful women, and as many boys, of every rank, and of every province, and wherever the arts of seduction proved ineffectual, the brutal lover had recourse to violence. The ancient historians have expiated on these abandoned scenes of prostitution, which scorned every restraint of nature or modesty, but it would not be easy to translate their too faithful descriptions into the decency of modern language. The intervals of lust were filled up with the basest amusements. The influence of a polite age and the labor of an attentive education had never been able to infuse into his rude and brutish mind the least tincture of learning, and he was the first of the Roman emperors totally devoid of taste for the pleasures of the understanding. Nero himself excelled, or affected to excel, in the elegant arts of music and poetry. Nor should we despise his pursuits, had he not converted the pleasing relaxation of a leisure hour into the serious business and ambition of his life. But Commodus, from his earliest infancy, discovered an aversion to whatever was rational or liberal, and a fond attachment to the amusements of the populace, the sports of the circus and amphitheater, the combat of gladiators, and the hunting of wild beasts. The masters in every branch of learning, whom Marcus provided for his son, were heard with inattention and disgust, whilst the Moors and Parthians, who taught him to dart the javelin and shoot with the bow, found a disciple who delighted in his application, and soon equaled the most skillful of his instructors in the steadiness of the eye and dexterity of the hand. The servile crowd, whose fortune depended on their master's vices, applauded these ignoble pursuits. The perfidious voice of flattery reminded him that, by exploits of the same nature, by the defeat of the Nemean lion and the slaughter of the wild boar of Arimanthus, the Grecian Hercules had acquired a place among the gods and an immortal memory among men. They only forgot to observe that, in the first ages of society, when the fiercer animals often dispute with man the possession of an unsettled country, a successful war against these savages is one of the most innocent and beneficial labors of heroism. In the civilized state of the Roman Empire, the wild beasts had long since retired from the face of man and the neighborhood of populous cities. To surprise them in their solitary haunts, and to transport them to Rome, that they might be slain in pomp by the hand of an emperor, was an enterprise equally ridiculous for the prince and oppressive for the people. Ignorant of these distinctions, Commodus eagerly embraced the glorious resemblance, and styled himself, as we still read on his medals, the Roman Hercules. The club and the lion's hide were placed by the sign of the throne amongst the ensigns of sovereignty, and statues were erected, in which Commodus were rep was represented in the character and with the attributes of the god, whose valor and dexterity he endeavored to emulate in the daily course of his ferocious amusements. 
Elated with these praises, which gradually extinguished the innate sense of shame, Commodus resolved to exhibit, before the eyes of the Roman people, those exercises which till then he had decently confined within the walls of his palace, and the presence of a very few favorites. On the appointed day, the various motives of flattery, fear, and curiosity attracted to the amphitheater an innumerable multitude of spectators, and some degree of applause was deservedly bestowed on the uncommon skill of the imperial performer. Whether he aimed at the heart or head of the animal, the wound was alike certain and mortal. With arrows whose point was shaped into the form of a crescent, Commodus often intercepted the rapid career and cut asunder the long, bony neck of the ostrich. A panther was let loose, and the archer waited till he had leapt upon a trembling malefactor. In the same instant, the shaft flew, and the beast dropped dead, and the man remained unhurt. The dens of the amphitheater disgorged at once a hundred lions. A hundred darts from the unerring hand of Commodus laid them dead as they ran, raging around the arena. Neither the huge bulk of the elephant nor the scaly hide of the rhinoceros could defend them from his stroke. Ethiopia and India yielded their most extraordinary productions, and several animals were slain in the amphitheater, which had only been seen in the representations of art, or perhaps of fancy. In all these exhibitions, the strictest precautions were used to protect the person of the Roman Hercules from the desperate spring of any savage who might possibly disregard the dignity of the emperor and sanctity of the god. But the meanest of the populace were affected with shame and indignation when they beheld their sovereign enter the lists as a gladiator and professed glory in a profession which the laws and manners of the Romans had branded with the justest note of infamy. He chose the habit and arms of the Secutor, whose combat with the Retiarius formed one of the most lively scenes in the bloody sports of the amphitheater. The Secutor was armed with a helmet, sword, and buckler. His naked antagonist had only a large net and trident. With the one he endeavored to entangle, with the other to dispatch his enemy. If he missed the first throw, he was obliged to fly from the pursuit of the Secutor, till he had prepared his net for a second cast. The emperor fought in this character seven hundred and thirty-five several times. These glorious achievements were carefully recorded in the public acts of the empire, and that he might omit no circumstance of infamy, he received from the common fund of gladiators a stipend so exorbitant that it became a new and most ignominious tax upon the Roman people. It may be easily supposed that in these entanglements the master of the world was always successful, in the amphitheater his victories were not often sanguinary, but when he exercised his skill in the school of gladiators, or in his own palace, his wretched antagonists were frequently honored with a mortal wound from the hand of Commodus, and obliged to seal their flattery with their blood. He now disdained the appellation of Hercules. The name of Paulus, a celebrated secutor, was the only one which delighted his ear. It was inscribed on his colossus statues, and repeated in the redoubled acclamations of the mournful and applauding senate. Claudius Pompeianus, the virtuous husband of Lucilla, was the only senator who asserted the honor of his rank. As a father, he permitted his sons to consult their safety by attending the amphitheater. As a Roman, he declared that his own life was in the emperor's hands, but that he would never behold the son of Marcus prostituting his person and dignity. Notwithstanding his manly resolution, Pompeianus escaped the resentment of the tyrant, and with his honor had the good fortune to preserve his life.
Commodus had now attained the summit of vice and infamy. Amidst the acclamations of a flattering court, he was unable to disguise from himself that he deserved the contempt and hatred of every man of sense and virtue in his empire. His ferocious spirit was irritated by the consciousness of that hatred, by the envy of every kind of merit, by the just apprehension of danger, and by the habit of slaughter which he contracted in his daily amusements. History has preserved a long list of consular senators sacrificed to his wanton suspicion, which sought out, with peculiar anxiety, those unfortunate persons connected, however remotely, with the family of the Antonines, without sparing even the ministers of his crimes or pleasures. His cruelty proved at last fatal to himself. He had shed with impunity the noblest blood of Rome. He perished as soon as he was dreaded by his own domestics. Marcia, his favorite concubine, Electus, his chamberlain, and Lytus, his praetorian prefect, alarmed by the fate of their companions and predecessors, resolved to prevent the destruction which every hour hung over their heads, either from the mad caprice of the tyrant or the sudden indignation of the people. Marcia seized the occasion by presenting a draught of wine to her lover, after he had fatigued himself with hunting some wild beasts. Commodus retired to sleep, but whilst he was laboring with the effects of poison and drunkenness, a robust youth, by profession a wrestler, entered his chamber and strangled him without resistance. The body was secretly conveyed out of the palace, before the least suspicion was entertained in the city, or even in the court of the emperor's death. Such was the fate of the son of Marcus, and so easy was it to destroy a hated tyrant, who, by the artificial powers of government, had oppressed, during thirteen years, so many millions of subjects, every one of whom was equal to their master in personal strength and personal abilities. The measures of the conspirators were conducted with the deliberate coolness and celerity which the greatness of the occasion required. They resolved instantly to fill the vacant throne with an emperor whose character would justify and maintain the action that had been committed. They fixed on Pertinax, prefect of the city, an ancient senator of consular rank, whose conspicuous merit had broke through the obscurity of his birth, and raised him to the first honors of the state. He had successfully governed most of the provinces of the empire, and in all of his great employments, military as well as civil, he had uniformly distinguished himself by the firmness, the prudence, and the integrity of his conduct. He now remained almost alone of the friends and ministers of Marcus, and when, at the late hour of the night, he was awakened with the news that the chamberlain and prefect were at his door, he received them with intrepid resignation, and desired that they would execute their master's orders. Instead of death, they offered him the throne of the Roman world. During some moments he distrusted their intentions and assurances. Convinced at length of the death of Commodus, he accepted the purple with sincere reluctance, the natural effect of his knowledge both of the duties and of the dangers of the supreme rank. Lytus conducted without delay the new emperor to the camp of the Praetorians, diffusing at the same time through the city a seasonable report that Commodus died suddenly of an apoplexy, and that the virtuous Pertinax had already succeeded to the throne. The guards were rather surprised than pleased with the suspicious death of a prince, whose indulgence and liberality they alone had experienced. But the emergency of the occasion, the authority of the prefect, the reputation of Pertinax, and the clamors of the people, obliged them to stifle their secret discontents to accept the donative promised by the new emperor, to swear allegiance to him, and, with joyful acclamations and laurels in their hands, 
to conduct him to the Senate House, that the military consent might be ratified by the civil authority. This important night was now far spent. With the dawn of day and the commencement of the new year, the senators expected a summons to attend an ignominious ceremony. In spite of all remonstrances, even those of his creatures who had not yet preserved any regard for prudence or decency, Commodus had resolved to pass the night in the gladiator's school, and from thence to take possession of the consulship, in the habit and with the attendance of that infamous crew. On a sudden, before the break of day, the Senate was called together in the Temple of Concord, to meet the guards and to ratify the election of a new emperor. For a few minutes they sat in silent suspense, doubtful of their unexpected deliverance, and suspicious that the cruel artifices of Commodus. But, when at length they were assured that the tyrant was no more, they resigned themselves to all the transports of joy and indignation. Pertinax, who modestly represented the meanness of his extraction, pointed out several noble senators more deserving than himself of the empire, was constrained by their dutiful violence to ascend the throne and receive all the titles of imperial power, confirmed by the most sincere vows of fidelity. The memory of Commodus was branded with internal infamy, the names of tyrant, of gladiator, of public enemy, resounded in every corner of the house. They decreed in tumultuous votes that his honor should be reversed, his titles erased from the public monuments, his statues thrown down, his body dragged with a hook into the stripping room of the gladiators, to satiate the public fury, and they even expressed some indignation about those officious servants who had already presumed to screen his remains from the justice of the senate but Pertinax could not refuse those last rites to the memory of Marcus and the fears of his first protector, Claudius Pompeianus, who lamented the cruel fate of his brother-in-law and lamented still more that he had deserved it. These effusions of impotent rage against the dead emperor, whom the Senate had flattered when alive with the most abject servility, betrayed a just but ungenerous spirit of revenge. The legality of these decrees was, however, supported by the principles of the imperial constitution. To censure, to depose, or to punish with death the first magistrate of the republic who had abused his delegated trust was the ancient and undoubted prerogative of the Roman Senate. But that feeble assembly was obliged to content itself with inflicting on a fallen tyrant that public justice from which, during his life and reign, he had been shielded by the strong arm of military despotism. Pertinax found a nobler way of condemning his predecessor's memory, by the contrast of his own virtues with the vices of Commodus. On the day of his ascension, he resigned over to his wife and son his whole private fortune, that they might have no pretense to solicit favors at the expense of the state. He refused to flatter the vanity of the former with the title of Augusta, or to corrupt the inexperienced youth of the latter by the rank of Caesar. Accurately distinguishing between the duties of a parent and those of a sovereign, he educated his son with a severe simplicity, which, while it gave him no assured prospect of the throne, might in time have rendered him worthy of it. In public, the behavior of Pertinax was grave and affable. He lived with the virtuous part of the Senate, and, in a private station, he had been acquainted with the true character of each individual. Without either pride or jealousy, considered them as friends and companions, with whom he shared the dangers of the tyranny, and with whom he wished to enjoy the security of the present time. He very frequently invited them to familiar entertainments, the frugality of which was ridiculed by those who remembered and regretted the luxurious prodigality of Commodus. To heal 
as far as it was possible, the wounds inflicted by the hands of tyranny was the pleasing but melancholy task of Pertinax. The innocent victims who yet survived were recalled from exile, released from prison, and restored to the full possession of their honors and fortunes. The unburied bodies of murdered senators, for the cruelty of Commodus endeavored to extend itself beyond death, were deposited in the sepulchres of their ancestors. Their memories were justified, and every consolation was bestowed on their ruined and afflicted families. Among these consolations, one of the most grateful was the punishment of the delators, the common enemies of their master, of virtue, and of their country. Yet, in the inquisition of these legal assassins, Pertinex proceeded with a steady temper which gave everything to justice and nothing to popular prejudice and resentment. The finances of the state demanded the most vigilant care of the emperor, though every measure of injustice and extortion had been adopted which could collect the property of the subject into the coffers of the prince, the rapaciousness of Commodus had been so very inadequate to his extravagance that, upon his death, no more than eight thousand pounds were found in the exhausted treasury, to defray the current expenses of government, and to discharge the pressing demand of a liberal donative, which the new emperor had been obliged to promise to the Praetorian guards. Yet, under these distressed circumstances, Pertinax had the generous firmness to remit all the oppressive taxes invented by Commodus, and to cancel all the unjust claims of the treasury, declaring, in a decree of the Senate, that he was better satisfied to administer a poor republic with innocence than to acquire riches by the ways of tyranny and dishonor. Economy and industry he considered as the pure and genuine sources of wealth, and from them he soon derived a copious supply for the public necessities. The expense of the household was immediately reduced to one half. All the instruments of luxury, Pertinax exposed to public auction. Gold and silver plate, chariots of a singular construction, a superfluous wardrobe of silk and embroidery, and a great number of beautiful slaves of both sexes, excepting only, and with attentive humanity, those who were born in a state of freedom, and had been ravished from the arms of their weeping parents. At the same time that he obliged the worthless favorites of the tyrant to resign a part of their ill-gotten wealth, he satisfied the just creditors of the state, and unexpectedly discharged the long arrears of honest services. He removed the oppressive restrictions that had been laid upon commerce, and granted all the uncultivated lands in Italy and the provinces to those who would improve them, with an exemption from tribute during the term of ten years. Such an uniform conduct had already secured to Pertinax the noblest reward of a sovereign, the love and esteem of his people. Those who remembered the virtues of Marcus were happy to contemplate in their new emperor the features of that bright original, and flattered themselves that they should long enjoy the benign influence of his administration. A hasty zeal to reform the corrupted state, accompanied with less prudence than might have been expected from the years and experience of Pertinax, proved fatal to himself and to his country. His honest indiscretion united against him the servile crowd, who found their private benefit in the public disorders, and who preferred the favor of a tyrant to the inexorable equality of the laws. Amidst the general joy, the sullen and angry countenance of the Praetorian guards betrayed their inward dissatisfaction. They had reluctantly submitted to Pertinax. They dreaded the strictness of the ancient discipline, which he was preparing to restore, and they regretted the license of the former reign. Their discontents were secretly fomented by Lytus, their prefect, who found, when it was too late, that his new emperor would reward a servant, but would not be ruled by a favorite. On the third day of his reign, the soldiers seized on a noble senator, 
with a design to carry him to the camp and to invest him with the imperial purple. Instead of being dazzled by the dangerous honor, the affrighted victim escaped from the violence and took refuge at the feet of Pertinax. A short time afterwards, Sosius Falco, one of the consuls of the year, a rash youth but of an ancient and opulent family, listened to the voice of ambition, and a conspiracy was formed during a short absence of Pertinax, which was crushed by a sudden return to Rome and his resolute behavior. Falco was on the point of being justly condemned to death as a public enemy, had he not been saved by the earnest and sincere entreaties of the injured emperor, who conjured the senate that the purity of his reign might not be stained by the blood even of a guilty senator. These disappointments served only to irritate the rage of the Praetorian guards. On the 28th of March, 86 days only after the death of Commodus, a general sedition broke out in camp, which the officers wanted either power or inclination to suppress. Two or three hundred of the most desperate soldiers marched at noonday, with arms in their hands and fury in their looks, towards the imperial palace. The gates were thrown open by their companions upon guard, and by the domestics of the old court, who had already formed a secret conspiracy against the life of the too virtuous emperor. On the news of their approach, Pertinax, disdaining either flight or concealment, advanced to meet his assassins, and recalled to their minds his own innocence and the sanctity of the recent oath. For a few moments they stood in silent suspense, ashamed of their atrocious design, and awed by the venerable aspect and majestic firmness of their sovereign, till at length, the despair of pardon reviving their fury, a barbarian of the country of Tongres leveled the first blow against Pertinax, who was instantly dispatched with a multitude of wounds. His head, separated from his body and placed on a lance, was carried in triumph to the Praetorian camp in the sight of a mournful and indignant people who lamented the unworthy fate of that insolent prince and the transient blessings of a reign, the memory of which can serve only to aggravate their approaching misfortunes. End of chapter 4, part 2Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1, by Edward Gibbon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5, Sale of the Empire to Didius Julianus, Part 1. The power of the sword is more sensibly felt in an extensive monarchy than in a small community. It has been calculated by the ablest politicians that no state, without being soon exhausted, can maintain above the hundredth part of its members in arms and idleness. But, although this relative proportion may be uniform, the influence of the army over the rest of the society will vary according to the degree of its positive strength. The advantages of military science and discipline cannot be exerted unless a proper number of soldiers are united into one body and actuated by one soul. With a handful of men such union would be ineffectual. With an unwieldy host it would be impracticable, and the powers of the machine would be alike destroyed by the extreme minuteness or the excessive weight of its springs. To illustrate this observation, we need only reflect that there is no superiority of natural strength, artificial weapons, or acquired skill, 
which would enable one man to keep in constant subjection one hundred of his fellow-creatures. The tyrants of a single town or a small district would soon discover that a hundred armed followers were a weak defence against ten thousand peasants or citizens. But a hundred thousand well-disciplined soldiers will command, with despotic sway, ten millions of subjects, and a body of ten or fifteen thousand guards will strike terror into the most numerous populace that ever crowded the streets of an immense capital. The Praetorian bands whose licentious fury was the first symptom and cause of the decline of the Roman Empire scarcely amounted to the last mentioned number. They derived their institution from Augustus, that crafty tyrant, sensible that laws might colour, but that arms alone could maintain his usurped dominion, had gradually formed this powerful body of guards, in constant readiness to protect his person, to awe the senate, and either to prevent or to crush the first motions of rebellion. He distinguished these favoured troops by a double pay and superior privileges, but as their formidable aspect would at once have alarmed and irritated the Roman people, three cohorts only were stationed in the capital, whilst the remainder was dispersed in the adjacent towns of Italy. But after fifty years of peace and servitude, Tiberius ventured on a decisive measure which forever riveted the fetters of his country. Under the fair pretences of relieving Italy from the heavy burden of military quarters, and of introducing a stricter discipline among the guards, he assembled them at Rome in a permanent camp, which was fortified with skilful care and placed on a commanding situation. Such formidable servants are always necessary, but often fatal to the throne of despotism. By thus introducing the Praetorian guards, as it were, into the palace and the senate, the emperors taught them to perceive their own strength and the weakness of the civil government, to view the vices of their master with familiar contempt, and to lay aside that reverential awe which distance only and mystery can preserve toward an imaginary power. In the luxurious idleness of an opulent city, their pride was nourished by the sense of their irresistible weight, nor was it possible to conceal from them that the person of the sovereign, the authority of the senate, the public treasure, and the seat of empire were all in their hands. To divert the Praetorian bands from these dangerous reflections, the firmest and best established princes were obliged to mix blandishments with commands, rewards with punishments, to flatter their pride, indulge their pleasures, connive at their irregularities, and to purchase their precarious faith by a liberal donative, which, since the elevation of Claudius, was enacted as a legal claim on the accession of every new emperor. The advocate of the guards endeavoured to justify by arguments the power which they asserted by arms, and to maintain that, according to the purest principles of the constitution, their consent was essentially necessary in the appointment of an emperor. The election of consuls, of generals, and of magistrates, however it had been recently usurped by the senate, was the ancient and undoubted right of the Roman people. But where was the Roman people to be found? not surely amongst the mixed multitude of slaves and strangers that filled the streets of Rome, 
a servile populace, as devoid of spirit, as destitute of property, the defenders of the state, selected from the flower of the Italian youth, and trained in the exercise of arms and virtue, were the genuine representatives of the people, and the best entitled to elect the military chief of the republic. These assertions, however defective in reason, became unanswerable when the fierce Praetorians increased their weight by throwing, like the barbarian conqueror of Rome, their swords into the scale. The Praetorians had violated the sanctity of the throne by the atrocious murder of Pertinax. They dishonoured the majesty of it by their subsequent conduct. The camp was without a leader, for even the perfect Cletius, who had excited the tempest, prudently declined the public indignation. Amidst the wild disorder, Sulpicianus, the emperor's father-in-law and governor of the city, who had been sent to the camp on the first alarm of mutiny, was endeavouring to calm the fury of the multitude when he was silenced by the clamorous return of the murderers, bearing on a lance the head of Pertinax. Though history has accustomed us to observe every principle and every passion, yielding to the imperious dictates of ambition, it is scarcely credible that in these moments of horror, Sulpicianus should have aspired to ascend a throne polluted with the recent blood of so near a relation, and so excellent a prince. He had already begun to use the only effectual argument, and to treat from the imperial dignity, but the more prudent of the Praetorians, apprehensive that in this private contract they should not obtain a just price for so valuable a commodity, ran out upon the ramparts, and with a loud voice proclaimed that the Roman world was to be disposed of to the best bidder by public auction. This infamous offer, the most insolent excess of military license, diffused a universal grief, shame, and indignation throughout the city. It reached at length the ears of Didius Julianus, a wealthy senator, who, regardless of the public calamities, was indulging himself in the luxury of the table. His wife and his daughter, his freedman and his parasites, easily convinced him that he deserved the throne, and earnestly conjured him to embrace so fortunate an opportunity. The vain old man hastened to the Praetorian camp, where Sulpicianus was still in treaty with the guards, and began to bid against him from the foot of the rampart. The unworthy negotiation was transacted by faithful emissaries, who passed, alternately, from one candidate to the other, and acquainted each of them with the offers of his rival. Sulpicianus had already promised a donative of five thousand drachmas, above one hundred and six pounds, to each soldier, when Julian, eager for the prize, rose at once to the sum of six thousand two hundred and fifty drachmas, or upwards of two hundred pounds sterling. The gates of the camp were instantly thrown open to the purchaser. He was declared emperor, and received an oath of allegiance from the soldiers, who retained humanity enough to stipulate that he should pardon and forget the competition of Sulpicianus. It was now incumbent on the Praetorians to fulfil the conditions of the sale. They placed their new sovereign, whom they served and despised, in the centre of their ranks, surrounded him on every side with their shields, and conducted him in close order of battle through the deserted streets of the city. 
the Senate was commanded to assemble, and those who had been the distinguished friends of Pertinax, or the personal enemies of Julian, found it necessary to affect a more than common share of satisfaction at this happy revolution. After Julian had filled the Senate House with armed soldiers, he expatiated on the freedom of his election, his own eminent virtues, and his full assurance of the affections of the Senate. The obsequious assembly congratulated their own, and the public felicity engaged their allegiance and conferred on him all the several branches of the imperial power. From the Senate, Julian was conducted by the same military procession to take possession of the palace. The first objects that struck his eyes were the abandoned trunk of Pertinax and the frugal entertainment prepared for his supper. The one he viewed with indifference, the other with contempt. A magnificent feast was prepared by his order, and he amused himself till a very late hour with dice, and the performance of Pylades, a celebrated dancer. Yet it was observed that after the group of flatterers dispersed, and left him to darkness, solitude, and terrible reflection, he passed a sleepless night, revolving most probably in his own mind his own rash folly, the fate of his virtuous predecessor, and the doubtful and dangerous tenure of an empire which had not been acquired by merit, but purchased by money. He had reason to tremble. On the throne of the world he found himself without a friend, and even without an adherent. The guards themselves were ashamed of the prince, whom their avarice had persuaded them to accept. Nor was there a citizen who did not consider his elevation with horror, as the last insult on the Roman name. The nobility, whose conspicuous station and ample possessions exacted the strictest caution, dissembled their sentiments, and met the affected civility of the emperor with smiles of complacency and professions of duty. But the people, secure in their numbers and obscurity, gave a free vent to their passions. The streets and public places of Rome resounded with clamours and imprecations. The enraged multitude affronted the person of Julian, rejected his liberality, and conscious of the impotence of their own resentment, they called aloud on the legions of the frontiers to assert the violated majesty of the Roman Empire. The public discontent was soon diffused from the centre to the frontiers of the empire. The armies of Britain, of Syria, and of Illyricum lamented the death of Pertinax, in whose company or under whose command they had so often fought and conquered. They received with surprise, with indignation, and perhaps with envy, the extraordinary intelligence that the Praetorians had disposed of the empire by public auction, and they sternly refused to ratify the ignominious bargain. Their immediate and unanimous revolt was fatal to Julian, but it was fatal at the same time to the public peace. As the generals of the respective armies, Clodius, Albinus, Vicenius, Niger, and Septimius, Severus, were still more anxious to succeed than to revenge the murdered Pertinax. Their forces were exactly balanced. Each of them was at the head of three legions, with a numerous train of auxiliaries, 
and however different in their characters, they were all soldiers of experience and capacity. Clodius Albinus, governor of Britain, surpassed both his competitors in the nobility of his extraction, which he derived from some of the most illustrious names of the old empire. But the branch from which he claimed his descent was sunk into mean circumstances, and transplanted into a remote province. It is difficult to form a just idea of his true character. Under the philosophic cloak of austerity, he stands accused of concealing most of the vices which degrade human nature. But his accusers are those venal writers who adored the fortune of Severus, and trampled on the ashes of an unsuccessful rival. Virtue, or the appearances of virtue, recommended Albinus to the confidence and good opinion of Marcus, and his preserving with the son the same interest which he had acquired with the father, is a proof at least that he was possessed of a very flexible disposition. The favour of a tyrant does not always suppose a want of merit in the object of it. He may, without attending it, reward a man of worth and ability, or he may find such a man useful to his own service. It does not appear that Albinus served the son of Marcus either as the minister of his cruelties or even as the associate of his pleasures. He was employed in a distant honourable command. When he received a confidential letter from the emperor, acquainting him of the treasonable designs of some discontented generals, and authorising him to declare himself the guardian and successor of the throne, by assuming the title and ensigns of Caesar, the governor of Britain wisely declined the dangerous honour, which would have marked him for the jealousy, or involved him in the approaching ruin of Commodus. He courted power by nobler, or at least by more specious arts. On a premature report of the death of the emperor, he assembled his troops, and in an eloquent discourse deplored the inevitable mischiefs of despotism, described the happiness and glory which their ancestors had enjoyed under the consular government, and declared his firm resolution to reinstate the senate and people in their legal authority. This popular harangue was answered by the loud acclamations of the British legions, and received at Rome with a secret murmur of applause. Safe in the possession of his little world, and in the command of an army less distinguished indeed for discipline than for numbers and valour, Albinus braved the menaces of Commodus, maintained towards Pertinax a stately ambiguous reserve, and instantly declared against the usurpation of Julian, the convulsions of the capital added new weight to his sentiments, or rather to his professions of patriotism. A regard to decency induced him to decline the lofty titles of Augustus and Emperor, and he imitated perhaps the example of Galba, who on a similar occasion had styled himself the lieutenant of the senate and people. Personal merit alone had raised Persenius Niger from an obscure birth and station to the government of Syria a lucrative and important command, which in times of civil confusion gave him a near prospect of the throne. Yet his part seemed to have been better suited to the second than to the first rank. He was an unequal rival, though he might have proved himself an excellent lieutenant to Severus, who afterwards displayed the greatness of his mind by adopting several useful institutions from a vanquished enemy. In his government, Niger acquired the esteem of the soldiers and the love of the provincials, 
his rigid discipline fortified the valour and confirmed the obedience of the former, while the voluptuous Syrians were less delighted with the mild firmness of his administration than with the affability of his manners, and the apparent pleasure with which he attended their frequent and pompous festivals. As soon as the intelligence of the atrocious murder of Pertinax had reached Antioch, the wishes of Asia invited Niger to assume the imperial purple and revenge his death. The legions of the eastern frontier embraced his cause. The opulent but unarmed provinces from the frontiers of Ethiopia to the Hadriatic cheerfully submitted to his power, and the kings beyond the Tigris and the Euphrates congratulated his election and offered him their homage and services. The mind of Niger was not capable of receiving this sudden tide of fortune. He flattered himself that his accession would be undisturbed by competition and unstained by civil blood, and whilst he enjoyed the vain pomp of triumph, he neglected to secure the means of victory. Instead of entering into an effectual negotiation with the powerful armies of the West, whose resolution might decide, or at least must balance, the mighty contest, Instead of advancing without delay towards Rome and Italy, where his presence was impatiently expected, Niger trifled away in the luxury of Antioch those irretrievable moments, which were diligently improved by the decisive activity of Severus. The country of Pannonia and Dalmatia, which occupied the space between the Danube and the Hadriatic, was one of the last and most difficult conquests of the Romans. In the defence of national freedom, Two hundred thousand of these barbarians had once appeared in the field, alarmed the declining age of Augustus, and exercised the vigilant prudence of Tiberius, at the head of the collected force of the empire. The Pannonians yielded at length to the arms and institutions of Rome. Their recent subjection, however, the neighbourhood and even the mixture of the unconquered tribes, and perhaps the climate, adapted, as it has been observed, to the production of great bodies and slow minds, all contributed to preserve some remains of their original ferocity, and under the tame and uniform countenance of Roman provincials, the hardy features of the natives were still to be discerned. Their warlike youth afforded an exhaustible supply of recruits to the legions stationed on the banks of the Danube, and which from a perpetual warfare against the Germans and Samazans were deservedly esteemed the best troops in the service. The Pannonian army was at this time commanded by Septimius Severus, a native of Africa, who in the gradual ascent of private honours had concealed his daring ambition, which was never diverted from its steady course by the allurements of pleasure, the apprehension of danger, or the feelings of humanity. On the first news of the murder of Pertinax, he assembled his troops, painted in the most lively colours the crime, the insolence, and the weakness of the Praetorian guards, and animated the legions to arms and to revenge. He concluded, and the peroration was thought extremely eloquent, with promising every soldier about four hundred pounds, an honourable donative, double in value to the infamous bribe with which Julian had purchased the empire. The acclamations of the army immediately saluted Severus, with the names of Augustus, Pertinax, and Emperor, and he thus attained the lofty station to which he was invited, by conscious merit and a long train of dreams and omens, 
the fruitful offsprings either of his superstition or policy. The new candidate for empire saw and improved the peculiar advantage of his situation. His province extended to the Julian Alps, which gave an easy access into Italy. And he remembered the saying of Augustus, that a Pannonian army might in ten days appear in sight of Rome. By a celerity, proportioned to the greatness of the occasion, he might reasonably hope to revenge Pertinax, punish Julian, and receive the homage of the Senate and people as their lawful emperor, before his competitors, separated from Italy by an immense tract of sea and land, were apprised of his success, or even of his election. During the whole expedition, he scarcely allowed himself any moments for sleep or food. Marching on foot and in complete armour at the head of his columns, he insinuated himself into the confidence and affection of his troops, pressed their diligence, revived their spirits, animated their hopes, and was well satisfied to share the hardships of the meanest soldier, whilst he kept in view the infinite superiority of his reward. The wretched Julian had expected and thought himself prepared to dispute the empire with the governor of Syria. But in the invincible and rapid approach of the Pannonian legions, he saw his inevitable ruin. The hasty arrival of every messenger increased his just apprehensions. He was successively informed that Severus had passed the Alps, that the Italian cities, unwilling or unable to oppose his progress, had received him with the warmest professions of joy and duty, that the important place of Ravenna had surrendered without resistance, and that the Hadriatic fleet was in the hands of the conqueror. The enemy was now within two hundred and fifty miles of Rome, and every moment diminished the narrow span of life and empire allotted to Julian. He attempted, however, to prevent, or at least to protract, his ruin. He implored the venal faith of the Praetorians, filled the city with unavailing preparations for war, drew lines round the suburbs, and even strengthened the fortifications of the palace, as if those last entrenchments could be defended, without hope of relief against the victorious invader. Fear and shame prevented the guards from deserting his standard but they trembled at the name of the Pannonian legions, commanded by an experienced general, and accustomed to vanquish the barbarians on the frozen Danube. They quitted with a sigh the pleasures of the baths and theatres, to put on arms whose use they had almost forgotten, and beneath the weight of which they were oppressed. The unpractised elephants, whose uncouth appearance, it was hoped, would strike terror into the army of the north, through their unskilful riders, and the awkward evolutions of the marines, drawn from the fleet of Mycenaeum, were an object of ridicule to the populace, whilst the senate enjoyed with secret pleasure the distress and weakness of the usurper. Every motion of Julian betrayed his trembling perplexity. He insisted that Severus should be declared a public enemy by the senate. He entreated that the Pannonian general might be associated to the empire, he sent public ambassadors of consular rank to negotiate with his rival. He dispatched private assassins to take away his life. He designed that the Vestal Virgins and all the colleges of priests, in their sacerdotal habits, and bearing before them the sacred pledges of the Roman religion, 
should advance in solemn procession to meet the Pannonian legions, and at the same time he vainly tried to interrogate or to appease the fates by magic ceremonies and unlawful sacrifices. End of chapter 5, part 1Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sale of the Empire to Didius Julianus, Part 2. Severus, who dreaded neither his arms nor his enchantments, guarded himself from the only danger of secret conspiracy, by the faithful attendance of six hundred chosen men, who never quitted his person or their cuirasses, either by night or by day, during the whole march. Advancing with a steady and rapid course, he passed, without difficulty, the defiles of the Apennine, received into his party the troops and ambassadors sent to retard his progress, and made a short halt at Interamnia, about seventy miles from Rome, his victory was already secure, but the despair of the Praetorians might have rendered it bloody, and Severus had the laudable ambition of ascending the throne without drawing his sword. His emissaries, dispersed in the capital, assured the guards that, provided they would abandon their worthless prince and the perpetrators of the murder of Pertinax to the justice of the conqueror, he would no longer consider that melancholy event as the act of the whole body the faithless Praetorians, whose resistance was supported only by sullen obstinacy, gladly complied with the easy conditions, seized the greatest part of the assassins, and signified to the Senate that they no longer defended the cause of Julian. That assembly, convoked by the consul, unanimously acknowledged Severus as lawful emperor, decreed divine honours to Pertinax, and pronounced a sentence of deposition and death against his unfortunate successor. Julian was conducted into a private apartment of the baths of the palace, and beheaded as a common criminal, after having purchased, with an immense treasure, an anxious and precarious reign of only sixty-six days. The almost incredible expedition of Severus, who in so short a space of time conducted a numerous army from the banks of the Danube, to those of the Tiber, proves at once the plenty of provisions, provided by agriculture and commerce, the goodness of the roads, the discipline of the legions, and the indolent, subdued temper of the provinces. The first cares of Severus were bestowed on two measures, the one dictated by policy, the other by decency, the revenge and the honours due to the memory of Pertinax. Before the new emperor entered Rome, he issued his commands to the Praetorian guards, directing them to wait his arrival on a large plain near the city, without arms, but in the habits of ceremony, in which they were accustomed to attend their sovereign. He was obeyed by those haughty troops, whose contrition was the effect of their just terrors. A chosen part of the Illyrian army encompassed them with levelled spears. Incapable of flight or resistance, they expected their fate in silent consternation, Severus mounted the tribunal, sternly reproached them with perfidy and cowardice, 
dismissed them with ignominy from the trust which they had betrayed, despoiled them of their splendid ornaments, and banished them on pain of death to the distance of a hundred miles from the capital. During the transaction, another detachment had been sent to seize their arms, occupy their camp, and prevent the hasty consequences of their despair. The funeral and consecration of Pertinax was next solemnized with every circumstance of sad magnificence. The Senate, with a melancholy pleasure, performed the last rites to that excellent prince, whom they had loved and still regretted. The concern of his successor was probably less sincere. He esteemed the virtues of Pertinax, but those virtues would forever have confined his ambition to a private station. Severus pronounced his funeral oration with studied eloquence, inward satisfaction, and well-acted sorrow, and by this pious regard to his memory convinced the credulous multitude that he alone was worthy to supply his place. Sensible, however, that arms, not ceremonies, must assert his claim to the empire, he left Rome at the end of thirty days, and without suffering himself to be elated by this easy victory, prepared to encounter his more formidable rivals. The uncommon abilities and fortune of Severus have induced an elegant historian to compare him with the first and greatest of the Caesars. The parallel is at least imperfect. Where shall we find in the character of Severus the commanding superiority of soul, the generous clemency, and the various genius, which could reconcile and unite the love of pleasure, the thirst of knowledge, and the fire of ambition. In one instance only they may be compared, with some degree of propriety, in the celerity of their motions and their civil victories. In less than four years Severus subdued the riches of the East and the valour of the West. He vanquished two competitors of reputation and ability, and defeated numerous armies, provided with weapons and discipline equal to his own. In that age, the art of fortification and the principles of tactics were well understood by all the Roman generals, and the constant superiority of Severus was that of an artist, who uses the same instruments with more skill and industry than his rivals. I shall not, however, enter into a minute narrative of these military operations. But as the two civil wars against Niger and against Albinus were almost the same in their conduct, event, and consequences, I shall collect into one point of view the most striking circumstances tending to develop the character of the conqueror and the state of the empire. Falsehood and insincerity, unsuitable as they seem to the dignity of public transactions, offenders with a less degrading idea of meanness than when they are found in the intercourse of private life. In the latter they discover a want of courage, in the other only a defect of power, and as it is impossible for the most able statesmen to subdue millions of followers and enemies by their own personal strength, the world under the name of policy seems to have granted them a very liberal indulgence of craft and dissimulation. Yet the arts of Severus cannot be justified by the most ample privileges of state reason. He promised only to betray, he flattered only to ruin, and however he might occasionally bind himself 
by oaths and treaties, his conscience, obsequious to his interest, always released him from the inconvenient obligation. If his two competitors, reconciled by their common danger, had advanced upon him without delay, perhaps Severus would have sunk under their united effort. Had they even attacked him at the same time, with separate views and separate armies, the contest might have been long and doubtful. But they fell, singly and successively, an easy prey to the arts as well as arms of their subtle enemy, lulled into security by the moderation of his professions, and overwhelmed by the rapidity of his action. He first marched against Niger, whose reputation and power he the most dreaded, but he declined any hostile declarations, suppressed the name of his antagonist, and only signified to the senate and people his intention of regulating the eastern provinces. In private he spoke of Niger, his old friend and intended successor, with the most affectionate regard, and highly applauded his generous design of revenging the murder of Pertinax. To punish the vile usurper of the throne was the duty of every Roman general. To persevere in arms and to resist a lawful emperor acknowledged by the Senate would alone render him criminal. The sons of Niger had fallen into his hands among the children of the provincial governors, detained at Rome as pledges for the loyalty of their parents. As long as the power of Niger inspired terror, or even respect, they were educated with the most tender care, with the children of Severus himself. But they were soon involved in their father's ruin, and removed first by exile, and afterwards by death, from the eye of public compassion. While Severus was engaged in his eastern war, he had reason to apprehend that the governor of Britain might pass the sea and the Alps, occupy the vacant seat of empire, and oppose his return with the authority of the Senate and the forces of the West. The ambiguous conduct of Albinus, in not assuming the imperial title, left room for negotiation. Forgetting at once his professions of patriotism and the jealousy of sovereign power, he accepted the precarious rank of Caesar as a reward for his fatal neutrality. Till the first contest was decided, Severus treated the man, whom he had doomed to destruction, with every mark of esteem and regard. Even in the letter in which he announced his victory over Niger, he styles Albinus the brother of his soul and empire, sends him the affectionate salutations of his wife Julia, and his young family, and entreats him to preserve the armies and the republic faithful to their common interest. The messengers charged with this letter were instructed to accost the Caesar with respect, to desire a private audience, and to plunge their daggers into his heart. The conspiracy was discovered, and the two credulous Albinus at length passed over to the continent and prepared for an unequal contest with his rival, who rushed upon him at the head of a veteran and victorious army. The military labours of Severus seem inadequate to the importance of his conquests. Two engagements, the one near the Hellespont, the other in the narrow defiles of Cilicia, decided the fate of his Syrian competitor, and the troops of Europe asserted their usual ascendant of the effeminate natives of Asia. 
the battle of Lyon, where one hundred and fifty thousand Romans were engaged, was equally fatal to Albinus. The valour of the British army maintained, indeed, a sharp and doubtful contest, with the hardy discipline of the Illyrian legions. The fame and person of Severus appeared during a few moments irrecoverably lost, till that warlike prince rallied his fainting troops and led them on to a decisive victory. The war was finished by that memorable day. The civil wars of modern Europe have been distinguished not only by the fierce animosity, but likewise by the obstinate perseverance of the contending factions. They have generally been justified by some principle, or at least coloured by some pretext of religion, freedom, or loyalty. The leaders were nobles of independent property and hereditary influence. The troops fought like men interested in the decision of the quarrel, and as military spirit and party zeal was strongly diffused throughout the whole community, a vanquished chief was immediately supplied with new adherents, eager to shed their blood in the same cause. But the Romans, after the fall of the Republic, combated only for the choice of masters. Under the standard of a popular candidate for empire, a few enlisted from affection, some from fear, many from interest, none from principle. The legions, uninflamed by party zeal, were allured into civil war by liberal donatives, and still more liberal promises. A defeat by disabling the chief from the performance of his engagements dissolved the mercenary allegiance of his followers, and left them to consult their own safety by a timely desertion of an unsuccessful cause. It was of little moment to the provinces, under whose name they were oppressed or governed. They were driven by the impulsion of the present power, and as soon as that power yielded to a superior force, they hastened to implore the clemency of the conqueror, who, as he had an immense debt to discharge, was obliged to sacrifice the most guilty countries to the avarice of his soldiers. In the vast extent of the Roman Empire, there were few fortified cities capable of protecting a rooted army, nor was there any person or family or order of men whose natural interest, unsupported by the powers of government, was capable of restoring the cause of a sinking party. Yet in the contest between Niger and Severus, a single city deserves an honourable exception, as Byzantium was one of the greatest passages from Europe into Asia, it had been provided with a strong garrison, and a fleet of five hundred vessels was anchored in the harbour. The impetuosity of Severus disappointed this prudent scheme of defence. He left to his generals the siege of Byzantium, forced the less guarded passage of the Hellespont, and impatient of a meaner enemy, pressed forward to encounter his rival. Byzantium, attacked by a numerous and increasing army, and afterwards by the whole naval power of the empire, sustained a siege of three years, and remained faithful to the name and memory of Niger. The citizens and soldiers, we know not from what cause, were animated with equal fury. Several of the principal officers of Niger, who despaired of, or who disdained a pardon, had thrown themselves into this last refuge. The fortifications were esteemed impregnable, and in the defence of the place, a celebrated engineer displayed all the mechanic powers known to the ancients. Byzantium at length surrendered to famine. The magistrates and soldiers were put to the sword, the walls demolished, 
the privileges suppressed, and the destined capital of the East subsisted only as an open village, subject to the insulting jurisdiction of Perinthus. The historian Dion, who had admired the flourishing and lamented the desolate state of Byzantium, accused the revenge of Severus for depriving the Roman people of the strongest bulwark against the barbarians of Pontus and Asia. The truth of this observation was but too well justified in the succeeding age, when the Gothic fleets covered the Euxine, and passed through the undefined Bosphorus to the centre of the Mediterranean. Both Niger and Albinus were discovered and put to death in their flight from the field of battle. Their fate excited neither surprise nor compassion. They had staked their lives against the chance of empire, and suffered what they would have inflicted. Nor did Severus claim the arrogant superiority of suffering his rivals to live in a private station. But his unforgiving temper, stimulated by avarice, indulged a spirit of revenge, where there was no room for apprehension. The most considerable of the provincials, who, without any dislike to the fortunate candidate, had obeyed the governor under whose authority they were accidentally placed, were punished by death, exile, and especially by the confiscation of their estates. Many cities of the east were stripped of their ancient honours, and obliged to pay into the treasury of Severus four times the amount of the sums contributed by them for the service of Niger. Till the final decision of the war, the cruelty of Severus was in some measure restrained by the uncertainty of the event, and his pretended reverence for the senate. The head of Albinus, accompanied with a menacing letter, announced to the Romans that he was resolved to spare none of the adherents of his unfortunate competitors, he was irritated by the just suspicion that he had never possessed the affections of the Senate, and he concealed his old malevolence under the recent discovery of some treasonable correspondences. Thirty-five senators, however, accused of having favoured the party of Albinus, he freely pardoned, and by his subsequent behaviour endeavoured to convince him that he had forgotten as well as forgiven their supposed offences. But at the same time, he condemned forty-one other senators, whose names history has recorded, their wives, children, and clients, attended them in death. And the noblest provincials of Spain and Gaul were involved in the same ruin. Such rigid justice, for so he termed it, was, in the opinion of Severus, the only conduct capable of ensuring peace to the people, or stability to the prince, and he condescended slightly to lament that to be mild it was necessary that he should first be cruel. The true interest of an absolute monarch generally coincides with that of his people. Their numbers, their wealth, their order, and their security are the best and only foundations of his real greatness. And were he totally devoid of virtue, prudence might supply its place, and would dictate the same rule of conduct. Severus considered the Roman Empire as his property, and had no sooner secured the possession than he bestowed his care on the cultivation and improvement of so valuable an acquisition. Salutary laws executed with inflexible firmness soon corrected most of the abuses with which, since the death of Marcus, every part of the government had been infected. In the administration of justice, the judgments of the emperor 
were characterized by attention, discernment, and impartiality. And whenever he deviated from the strict line of equity, it was generally in favor of the poor and oppressed. Not so much indeed from any sense of humanity, as from the natural propensity of a despot to humble the pride of greatness, and to sink all his subjects to the same common level of absolute dependence. His expensive taste for building magnificent shows, and above all a constant and liberal distribution of corn and provisions, were the surest means of captivating the affection of the Roman people. The misfortunes of civil discord were obliterated. The clam of peace and prosperity was once more experienced in the provinces, and many cities, restored by the munificence of Severus, assumed the title of his colonies, and attested by public monuments their gratitude and felicity. The fame of the Roman arms was revived by that warlike and successful emperor, and he boasted with a just pride that having received the empire oppressed with foreign and domestic wars, he left it established in profound, universal, and honourable peace. Although the wounds of civil war appeared completely healed, its mortal poison still lurked in the vitals of the constitution. Severus possessed a considerable share of vigour and ability, but the daring soul of the first Caesar, or the deep policy of Augustus, was scarcely equal to the task of curbing the insolence of the victorious legions. By gratitude, by misguided policy, by seeming necessity, Severus was reduced to relax the nerves of discipline. The vanity of his soldiers was flattered with the honour of wearing gold rings. Their ease was indulged in the permission of living with their wives, in the idleness of quarters. He increased their pay beyond the example of former times, and taught them to expect, and soon to claim, extraordinary donatives on every public occasion of danger or festivity. Elated by success, enervated by luxury, and raised above the level of subjects by their dangerous privileges, they soon became incapable of military fatigue, oppressive to the country, and impatient of a just subordination. Their officers asserted the superiority of rank by a more profuse and elegant luxury. There is still extant a letter of Severus lamenting the licentious stage of the army, and exhorting one of his generals to begin the necessary reformations from the tribunes themselves, since, as he justly observes, the officer who has forfeited the esteem will never command the obedience of his soldiers. Had the emperor pursued the train of reflection, he would have discovered that the primary cause of this general corruption might be ascribed not, indeed, to the example, but to the pernicious indulgence, however, of the commander-in-chief. The Praetorians, who murdered their emperor and sold the empire, had received the just punishment of their treason, but the necessary, though dangerous, institution of guards was soon restored on a new model by Severus, and increased to four times the ancient number. Formerly these troops had been recruited in Italy, and as the adjacent provinces gradually imbibed the softer manners of Rome, the levies were extended to Macedonia, Noricum, and Spain. In the room of these elegant troops, 
better adapted to the pomp of courts than to the uses of war, it was established by Severus that from all the legions of the frontiers, the soldiers most distinguished for strength, valour, and fidelity should be occasionally drafted and promoted as an honour and reward into the more eligible service of the guards. By this new institution, the Italian youth were diverted from the exercise of arms, and the capital was terrified by the strange aspect and manners of a multitude of barbarians. But Severus flattered himself that the legions would consider these chosen praetorians as the representatives of the whole military order, and that the present aid of fifty thousand men, superior in arms and appointments to any force that could be brought into the field against them, would forever crush the hopes of rebellion, and secure the empire to himself and his posterity. The command of these favoured and formidable troops soon became the first office of the empire. As the government degenerated into military despotism, the Praetorian prefect, who in his origin had been a simple captain of the guards, was placed not only at the head of the army, but of the finances, and even of the law. In every department of administration he represented the person, and exercised the authority of the emperor. The first prefect, who enjoyed and abused this immense power, was Plotianus, the favourite minister of Severus. His reign lasted above ten years, till the marriage of his daughter, with the eldest son of the emperor, which seemed to assure his fortune, proved the occasion of his ruin. The animosities of the palace, by irritating the ambition and alarming the fears of Plotinus, threatened to produce a revolution, and obliged the emperor, who still loved him, to consent with reluctance to his death. After the fall of Plotianus, an eminent lawyer, the celebrated Papinian, was appointed to execute the motley office of Praetorian Prefect. Till the reign of Severus, the virtue, and even the good sense of the emperors, had been distinguished by the zeal or affected reverence for the senate, and by a tender regard to the nice frame of civil policy instituted by Augustus but the youth of Severus had been trained in the implicit obedience of camps, and his riper years spent in the despotism of military command. His haughty and inflexible spirit could not discover, or would not acknowledge, the advantage of preserving an intermediate power, however imaginary, between the emperor and the army. He disdained to profess himself the servant of an assembly that detested his person, and trembled at his frown. He issued his commands, where his requests would have proved as effectual, assumed the conduct and style of a sovereign and a conqueror, and exercised without disguise the whole legislative, as well as the executive power. The victory over the Senate was easy and inglorious. Every eye and every passion were directed to the supreme magistrate, who possessed the arms and treasure of the state whilst the Senate, neither elected by the people, nor guided by military force, nor animated by public spirit, rested its declining authority on the frail and crumbling basis of ancient opinion. The fine theory of a republic insensibly vanished, and made way for the more natural and substantial feelings of monarchy. As the freedom and honours of Rome were successively communicated to the provinces, in which the old government 
had been either unknown or was remembered with abhorrence. The tradition of republican maxims was gradually obliterated. The Greek historians of the age of the Antonines observe, with a malicious pleasure, that although the sovereign of Rome, in compliance with an obsolete prejudice, abstained from the name of king, he possessed the full measure of regal power. In the reign of Severus, the Senate was filled with polished and eloquent slaves from the eastern provinces, who justified personal flattery by speculative principles of servitude. These new advocates of prerogative were heard with pleasure by the court, and with patience by the people, when they inculcated the duty of passive obedience, and descanted on the inevitable mischiefs of freedom. The lawyers and historians concurred in teaching that the imperial authority was held not by the delegated commission, but by the irrevocable resignation of the senate, that the emperor was freed from the restraint of civil laws, could command by his arbitrary will the lives and fortunes of his subjects, and might dispose of the empire as of his private patrimony. The most eminent of the civil lawyers, and particularly Papinian, Paulus, and Upian, flourished under the house of Severus and the Roman jurisprudence, having closely united itself with the system of monarchy, was supposed to have attained its full majority and perfection. The contemporaries of Severus, in the enjoyment of the peace and glory of his reign, forgave the cruelties by which it had been introduced. Posterity, who experienced the fatal effects of his maxims and example, justly considered him as the principal author of the decline of the Roman Empire. End of chapter 5, part 2「6 Part 1 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Death of Severus. Tyranny of Caracalla. Usurpation of Macrinus. Follies of Elagalibus. Virtues of Alexander Severus. Licentiousness of the Army. General State of the Roman Finances, Tax and Tribute. The ascent to greatness, however steep and dangerous, may entertain an active spirit with the consciousness and exercise of its own powers, but the possession of a throne can never afford a lasting satisfaction to an ambitious mind. This melancholy truth was felt and acknowledged by Severus. Fortune and merit had, from an humble station, elevated him to the first place among mankind. He had been all things, as he said himself, and all was of little value. Distracted with the care, not of acquiring, but of preserving an empire, oppressed with age and infirmities, careless of fame, insatiated with power, all his prospects of life were closed. The desire of perpetuating the greatness of his family was the only remaining wish of his ambition and paternal tenderness. Like most Africans, Severus was passionately addicted to the vain studies of magic and divination, deeply versed in the interpretations of dreams and omens, and perfectly acquainted with the science of judicial astrology, which, in almost every age, except the present, has maintained its dominion over the mind of man. He had lost his first wife while he was governor of the Leonese Gaul. In the choice of a second, 
he sought only to connect himself with some favorite of fortune, and, as soon as he had discovered that a young lady of Emesa, in Syria, had a royal nativity, he solicited and obtained her hand. Julia Domna, for that was her name, deserved all that the stars could promise her. She possessed, even in an advanced age, the attractions of beauty, and united to a lively imagination, a firmness of mind, a strength of judgment, seldom bestowed on her sex. Her amiable qualities never made any deep impression on the dark and jealous temper of her husband. But, in her son's reign, she administered the principal affairs of the empire with a prudence that supported his authority, and with a moderation that sometimes corrected his wild extravagances. Julia applied herself to letters and philosophy, with some success, and with the most splendid reputation. She was the patroness of every art, and the friend of every man of genius. The grateful flattery of the learned had celebrated her virtues, but, if we may credit the scandal of ancient history, chastity was very far from being the most conspicuous virtue of the empress Julia. Two sons, Caracula and Geta, was the fruit of her marriage, and the destined heirs of the empire. The fond hopes of the father, and of the Roman world, were soon disappointed by these vain youths, who displayed the indolent security of hereditary princes, and a presumption that fortune would supply the place of merit and application. Without any emulation of virtue or talents, they discovered, almost from their infancy, a fixed and implacable antipathy for each other. Their aversion, confirmed by years, and fermented by the arts of their interested favorites, broke out in childish and gradually in more serious competitions, and at length divided the theater, the circus, and the court into two factions, actuated by the hopes and fears of their respected leaders. The prudent emperor endeavored, by every expedient of advice and authority, to allay this growing animosity. The unhappy discord of his sons clouded all his prospects, and threatened to overturn a throne raised by so much labor, cemented with so much blood, and guarded with every defense of arms and treasure. With an impartial hand he maintained between them an exact balance of favor, conferred on both the rank of Augustus, and the revered name of Antoninus, and for the first time the Roman world beheld three emperors. Yet even this equal conduct served only to inflame the contest, whilst the fierce Caracula asserted the right of primogenitor, the milder Geta courted the affections of the people and the soldiers. In the anguish of a disappointed father, Severus foretold that the weaker of his sons would fall sac sacrifice to the stronger, who in his turn would be ruined by his own vices. In these circumstances, the intelligence of a war in Britain, and of an invasion of the provinces by the barbarians of the north, was received with pleasure by Severus. Though the vigilance of his lieutenants might have been sufficient to repel the distant enemy, he resolved to embrace the honorable pretext of withdrawing his sons from the luxury of Rome, which enervated their minds and irritated their passions, and of ignoring their youth to the toils of war and government. Notwithstanding his advanced age, for he was about threescore, and his gout, which obliged him to be carried in a litter, he transported himself in person into that remote island, attended by his two sons, his whole court, and a formidable army. He immediately passed the walls of Hadrian and Antonidas, and entered the enemy's country, with the design of completing the long-attempted conquest of Britain. He penetrated to the northern extremity of the island without meeting an enemy, but the concealed ambuscades of the Caledonians, who hung unseen on the rear and flanks of his army, 
the coldness of the climate and the severity of a winter march across the hills and morasses of scotland are reported to have cost the romans above fifty thousand men the caledonians at length yielded to the powerful and obstinate attack sued for peace surrendered a part of their arms and a large tract of territory but their apparent submission lasted no longer than the present terror as soon as the roman legions had retired they resumed their hostile independence their restless spirit provoked severus to send a new army into caledonia with the most bloody orders not to subdue but to extirpate the natives they were saved by the death of their haughty enemy this caledonian war neither marked by decisive events nor attended with any important consequences would ill deserve our attention but it is supposed not without a considerable degree of probability that the invasion of severus is connected with the most shining period of the british history or fable fingal whose fame with that of his heroes and bards has been revived in our language by a recent publication is said to have commanded the caledonians in that memorable junction to have eluded the power of severus and to have obtained a signal victory on the banks of the Caron, in which the son of the king of the world caracol fled from his arms across the fields of his pride something of a doubtful mist still hangs over these highland traditions nor can it be entirely dispelled by the most ingenious researches of modern criticism but if we could with safety indulge the pleasing supposition that fingal lived and that ossian sung the striking contrast of the situation and manners of the contending nations might amuse a philosophic mind the parallel would be of little advantage to the more civilized people if we compare the unrelenting revenge of severus with the generous clemency of fingal the timid and brutal cruelty of caracalla with the bravery the tenderness the elegant genius of ossian the mercenary chiefs who for motives of fear or interest served under the imperial standard with the free-born warriors who started to arms at the voice of the king of the morvan if in a word we contemplated the untutored caledonians glowing with the warm virtues of nature and the degenerate romans polluted with the mean vices of wealth and slavery the declining health and illness of severus inflamed the wild ambition and black passions of caracalla's soul impatient of any delay or division of empire he attempted more than once to shorten the small remainder of his father's days and endeavored but without success to excite a mutiny among the troops the old emperor had often censured the misguided lenity of marcus who by a single act of justice might have saved the romans from the tyranny of his worthless son placed in the same situation he experienced how easily the rigor of a judge dissolves away in the tenderness of a parent he deliberated he threatened but he could not punish and this last and only instance of mercy was more fatal to the empire than a long series of cruelty the disorder of his mind irritated the pains of his body he wished impatiently for death and hastened the instant by his own impatience he expired at york in the sixty-fifth year of his life in the eighteenth of a glorious and successful reign in his last moments he recommended concord to his sons and his sons to the army the salutary advice never reached the heart or even the understanding of the impetuous youths but the more obedient troops mindful of their oath of allegiance and the authority of their deceased master resisted the solicitations of caracalla and proclaimed both brothers emperors of rome the new princes soon left the caledonians in peace returned to the capital celebrated their father's funeral with divine honors and were cheerfully acknowledged as lawful sovereigns by the senate the people and the provinces 
Some preeminence of rank seems to have been allowed to the elder brother, but they both administered the empire with equal and independent power. Such a divided former government would have proved a source of discord between the most affectionate brothers. It was impossible that it could long subsist between two implacable enemies, who neither desired nor can trust a reconciliation. It was visible that only one could reign, and the other must fall. And each of them, judging of his rival's designs by his own, guarded his life with the most jealous vigilance from the repeated attacks of poison or the sword. Their rapid journey through Gaul and Italy, during which they never ate at the same table or slept in the same house, displayed to the provinces the odious spectacle of fraternal discord. On their arrival at Rome, they immediately divided the vast extent of the imperial palace. No communication was allowed between their apartments. The doors and passages were digilently fortified, and guards were posted and relieved with the same strictness as in a besieged place. The emperors met only in public, in the presence of their afflicted mother, and each surrounded by a numerous train of armed followers. Even on these occasions of ceremony, the dissimulation of courts could ill-disguise the rancor of their hearts. This latent civil war already distracted the whole government when a scheme was suggested that seemed of mutual benefit to the hostile brothers. It was proposed that, since it was impossible to reconcile their minds, they should separate their interest and divide the empire between them. The conditions of the treaty were already drawn with some accuracy. It was agreed that Caracalla, as the elder brother, should remain in possession of Europe and the western Africa, and that he should relinquish the sovereignty of Asia and Egypt to Geta, who might fix his residence at Alexandria or Antioch, cities little inferior to Rome itself in wealth and greatness, that numerous armies should be constantly encamped on either side of the Thracian Bosphorus to guard the frontiers of the rival monarchies, and that the senators of European extraction should acknowledge the sovereignty of Rome, whilst the natives of Asia followed the emperor of the East. The tears of the Empress Julia interrupted the negotiation, the first idea of which filled every Roman breast with surprise and indignation. The mighty mass of conquest was so intimately connected by the hand of time and policy that it required the most forcible violence to rend it asunder. The Romans had reason to dread that the disjointed members would soon be reduced by a civil war under the dominion of one master. But, if the separation was permanent, the division of the provinces must terminate in the dissolution of an empire whose unity hitherto remained inviolate. Had the treaty been carried into execution, the sovereign of Europe might soon have been the conqueror of Asia. But Caracalla obtained an easier, though a more guilty, victory. He artfully listened to his mother's entreaties, and consented to meet his brother in her apartment on terms of peace and reconciliation. In the midst of their conversation, some centurions, who had contrived to conceal themselves, rushed with drawn swords upon the unfortunate Geta. His distracted mother strove to protect him in her arms, but in the unveiling struggle she was wounded in the hand and covered with the blood of her younger son, while she saw the elder animating and assisting the fury of the assassins. As soon as the deed was perpetrated, Caracalla, with heavy steps and horror in his countenance, ran towards the Praetorian camp as his only refuge, and threw himself on the ground before the statues of the tutelar deities. The soldiers attempted to raise and comfort him. In broken and disordered words he informed them of his imminent danger and fortunate escape, insinuating that he had prevented the designs of his enemy, and declared his resolution to live and die with his faithful troops. 
Geta had been the favorite of the soldiers, but the complaint was useless, revenge was dangerous, and they still reverenced the son of Severus. Their discontent died away in idle murmurs, and Caracalla soon convinced them of the justice of his cause, by distributing in one lavish donative the accumulated treasures of his father's reign. The real sentiments of the soldiers alone were of importance to his safety or power. Their declaration in his favor commanded the dutiful professions of the Senate. The obsequious assembly was always prepared to ratify the decision of fortune, but as Caracalla wished to assuage the first emotions of public indignation, the name of Geta was mentioned with decency, and he received the funeral honors of a Roman emperor. Posterity, in pity to his misfortune, has cast a veil over his vices. We consider that young prince as the innocent victim of his brother's ambition, without recollecting that he himself wanted power, rather than inclination, to consummate the same attempts of murder and revenge. The crime went not unpunished. Neither business, nor pleasure, nor flattery could defend Cracula from the stings of a guilty conscience. He confessed, in the anguish of a tortured mind, that his disordered fancy often beheld the angry forms of his father and his brother rising into life to threaten and upbraid him. The consciousness of his crime should have induced him to convince mankind, by the virtues of his reign, that the bloody deed had been the involuntary effect of fatal necessity. But the repentance of Caracalla only prompted him to remove from the world whatever could remind him of his guilt, or recall the memory of his murdered brother. On his return from the Senate to the palace, he found his mother in the company of several noble matrons, weeping over the untimely fate of her younger son. The jealous emperor threatened them with instant death. The sentence was executed against Fidilla, the last remaining daughter of the emperor Marcus, and even the afflicted Julia was obliged to silence her lamentations, to suppress her sighs, and to receive the assassin with smiles of joy and approbation. It was computed that, under the vague appellation of the friends of Geta, Above twenty thousand persons of both sexes suffered death. His guards and freedmen, the ministers of his serious business, and the companions of his looser hours, those who by his interest had been promoted to any commands in the army or provinces, with the long connected chain of their dependents, were included in the prescription, which endeavored to reach every one who had maintained the smallest correspondence with Geta, who lamented his death, or even mentioned his name. Helvius Pertinax, son to the prince of that name, lost his life by an unseasonable witticism. It was a sufficient crime of Thracia Priscus to be descended from a family in which the love of liberty seemed to be an hereditary quality. The particular causes of calumny and suspicion were at length exhausted, and when a senator was accused of being a secret enemy to the government, the emperor was satisfied with the general proof that he was a man of property and virtue. From this well-grounded principle, he frequently drew the most bloody inferences. End of chapter 6, part 1chapter 6, part 2 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The execution of so many innocent citizens was bewailed by the secret tears of their friends and families. The death of Pepinian, the Praetorian prefect, was lamented as a public calamity. During the last seven years of Severus, he had exercised the most important offices of the state, 
and, by his salutary influence, guided the emperor's steps in the paths of justice and moderation. In full assurance of his virtues and abilities, Severus, on his deathbed, had conjured him to watch over the prosperity and union of the imperial family. The honest labors of Papinian served only to inflame the hatred which Caracula had already conceived against his father's minister. After the murder of Geta, the prefect was commanded to exert the powers of his skill and eloquence in a studied apology for that atrocious deed. The philosophic Seneca had condescended to compose a similar epistle to the Senate, in the name of the son and assassin of Agrippina. Quote, that it was easier to commit than to justify a parricide, unquote, was the glorious reply of Papinian, who did not hesitate between the loss of life and that of honor. Such intrepid virtue, which had escaped pure and unsullied from the intrigues of courts, the habits of business, and the arts of his profession, reflects more luster on the memory of Papinian than all his great employments, his numerous writings, and the superior reputation as a lawyer, which he has preserved through every age of Roman jurisprudence. It had hitherto been the particular felicity of the Romans, and in the worst of times their consolation, that the virtue of the emperors was active, their vice indolent. Augustus, Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus had visited their extensive dominions in person. Their progress was marked by acts of wisdom and beneficence. The tyranny of Tiberius, Nero, and Domitian, who resided almost constantly at Rome or in the adjacent villas, was confined to the senatorial and equestrian orders. But Caracalla was the common enemy of mankind. He left the capital, and he never returned to it, about a year after the murder of Geta. The rest of his reign was spent in the several provinces of the empire, particularly those of the east, and every province was, by turns, the scene of his rapine and cruelty. The senators, compelled by fear to attend his capricious motions, were obliged to provide daily entertainments at an immense expense which he abandoned with contempt to his guards, and to erect, in every city, magnificent palaces and theatres, which he either disdained to visit or ordered to be immediately thrown down. The most wealthy families were ruined by partial fines and confiscations, and the great body of his subjects oppressed by ingenious and aggravated taxes. In the midst of peace, and upon the slightest provocation, he issued his commands, at Alexandria in Egypt, for a general massacre. From a secure post in the temple of Serapis, he viewed and directed the slaughter of many thousand citizens, as well as strangers, without distinguishing either the numbers or the crimes of the sufferers. Since, as he coolly informed the Senate, all the Alexandrians, those who had perished and those who had escaped, were alike guilty. The wise instructions of Severus never made any lasting impression on the mind of his son, who, although not destitute of imagination and eloquence, was equally devoid of judgment and humanity. One dangerous maxim, worthy of a tyrant, was remembered and abused by Caracalla. To secure the affections of the army, and esteem the rest of his subjects as of little moment. But the liberality of the father had been restrained by prudence, and his indulgence to the troop was tempered by firmness and authority. The careless profusion of the son was the policy of one reign, and the inevitable ruin of the army and of the empire. The vigor of the soldiers, instead of being confirmed by the severe discipline of the camps, melted away in the luxury of cities. The excessive increase of their pay and donatives exhausted the state to enrich the military order, whose modesty in peace and service in war is best secured by an honorable poverty. The demeanor of Caracalla was haughty and full of pride, but with the troops he forgot even the proper dignity of his rank, 
encouraged their insolent familiarity, and, neglecting the essential duties of a general, affected to imitate their dress and manners of a common soldier. It was impossible that such a character and such a conduct as that of Caracalla could inspire either love or esteem. But as long as his vices were beneficial to the armies, he was secure from the danger of rebellion. A secret conspiracy, provoked by his own jealousy, was fatal to the tyrant. The Praetorian prefecture was divided between two ministers. The military department was entrusted to Aventus, an experienced rather than an able soldier, and the civil affairs was transacted by Apilius Macrinus, who, by his dexterity in business, had raised himself with a fair character to that high office. But his favor varied with the caprice of the emperor, and his life might depend on the slightest suspicion or the most casual circumstance. Malice or fanaticism had suggested to an African, deeply skilled in the knowledge of futurity, a very dangerous prediction, that Macrinus and his son were destined to reign over the empire. Their report was soon diffused through the province, and when the man was sent in chains to Rome, he still asserted, in the presence of the prefect of the city, the faith of his prophecy. That magistrate, who had received the most pressing instructions to inform himself of the successors of Caracalla, immediately communicated the examination of the African to the imperial court, which at that time resided in Syria. Notwithstanding the diligence of the public messengers, the friends of Macrinus found means to apprise him of the approaching danger. The emperor received the letters from Rome, and, as he was then engaged in the conduct of a chariot race, he delivered them unopened to the praetorian prefect, directing him to dispatch the ordinary affairs, and to report the more important business that might be contained in them. Macrinus read his fate, and resolved to prevent it. He inflamed the discontents of some inferior officers, and employed the hand of Martialis, a desperate soldier who had been refused the rank of centurion. The devotion of Caracalla had prompted him to make a pilgrimage from Edessa to the celebrated Temple of the Moon at Cairai. He was attended by a body of cavalry, but had stopped on the road for some necessary occasion. His guards preserved a respectful distance, and Martialis, approaching his person under a pretense of duty, stabbed him with a dagger. The bold assassin was instantly killed by a Scythian archer of the Imperial Guard. Such was the end of a monster whose life disgraced human nature, and whose reign accused the patience of the Romans. The grateful soldiers forgot their vices, remembered only his partial liberality, and obliged the Senate to prostitute their own dignity and that of religion by granting him a place among the gods. Whilst he was upon earth, Alexander the Great was the only hero whom this god deemed worthy his admiration. He assumed the name and ensigns of Alexander, formed a Macedonian phalanx of guards, persecuted the disciples of Aristotle, and displayed with a puerile enthusiasm the only sentiment by which he discovered any regard for virtue or glory. We can easily conceive that, after the Battle of Narva and the conquest of Poland, Charles the Twelfth, although he still wanted the more elegant accomplishments of the son of Philip, might boast of having rivaled his valor and magnanimity. But in no one action of his life did Caracalla express the faintest resemblance of the Macedonian hero, except in the murder of a great number of his own and his father's friends. After the extinction of the house of Severus, the Roman world remained three days without a master. The choice of the army, for the authority of a distant and feeble senate was little regarded, hung in anxious suspense 
as no candidate presented himself whose distinguished birth and merit could engage their attachment and unite their suffrages, the decisive weight of the Praetorian guards elevated the hopes of their prefects, and these powerful ministers began to assert their legal claim to fill the vacancy of the imperial throne. Aventus, however, the senior prefect, conscious of his age and infirmities, of his small reputation and his smaller abilities, resigned the dangerous honor to the crafty ambition of his colleague Macrinus, whose well-dissembled grief removed all suspicions of his being accessory to his master's death. The troops neither loved nor esteemed his character. They cast their eyes around in search of a competitor, and at last yielded with reluctance to his promises of unbounded liberality and indulgence. A short time after his accession, he conferred on his son, Diadumenianus, at the age of only ten years, the imperial title and the popular name of Antoninus. The beautiful figure of the youth, assisted by an additional donative, for which the ceremony furnished a pretext, might attract, it was hoped, the favor of the army, and secure the doubtful throne of Macrinus. The authority of the new sovereign had been ratified by the cheerful submission of the Senate and provinces. They exulted in their unexpected deliverance from a hated tyrant, and it seemed of little consequence to examine into the virtues of the successor of Caracalla. But as soon as the first transports of joy and surprise had subsided, they began to scrutinize the merits of Macrinus with a critical severity, and to arraign the hasty choice of the army. It had hitherto been considered as a fundamental maxim of the Constitution that the Emperor must always be chosen in the Senate, and the sovereign power, no longer exercised by the whole body, was always delegated to one of its members. But Macrinus was not a senator. The sudden elevation of the Praetorian prefects betrayed the meanness of their origin, and the equestrian order was still in possession of that great office, which commanded with arbitrary sway the lives and fortunes of the Senate. A murmur of indignation was heard, that a man whose obscure extraction had never been illustrated by any signal service, should dare to invest himself with the purple, instead of bestowing it on some distinguished senator, equal in birth and dignity to the splendor of the imperial station. As soon as the character of Macrinus was surveyed by the sharp eye of discontent, some vices and many defects were easily discovered. The choice of his ministers was in several instances justly censored, and the dissatisfied people, with their usual candor, accused at once his indolent tameness and his excessive severity. His rash ambition had climbed a height where it was difficult to stand with firmness, and impossible to fall without instant destruction. Trained in the arts of courts and the forms of civil business, he trembled in the presence of the fierce and undisciplined multitude over whom he had assumed the command. His military talents were despised, and his personal courage suspected. A whisper that circulated in the camp disclosed the fatal secret of the conspiracy against the late emperor, aggravated the guilt of murder by the baseness of hypocrisy, and heightened contempt by detestation. To alienate the soldiers and to provoke inevitable ruin, the character of a reformer was only wanting, and such was the peculiar hardship of his fate that Macrinus was compelled to exercise that invidious office. The prodigality of Caracalla had left behind it a long train of ruin and disorder, and if that worthless tyrant had been capable of reflecting on the sure consequences of his own conduct, he would perhaps have enjoyed the dark prospect of the distress and calamities which he bequeathed to his successors. In the management of this necessary reformation, Macrinus proceeded with a cautious prudence, which would have restored health and vigor to the Roman army in an easy and almost imperceptible manner. 
to the soldiers already engaged in the service, he was constrained to leave the dangerous privileges and extravagant pay given by Caracalla. But the new recruits were received on the more moderate, though liberal, establishment of Severus, and gradually formed to modesty and obedience. One fatal error destroyed the salutary effects of this judicious plan. The numerous army, assembled in the east by the late emperor, instead of being immediately dispersed by Macrinus through the several provinces, was suffered to remain united in Syria during the winter that followed his elevation. In the luxurious idleness of their quarters, the troops viewed their strength and numbers, communicated their complaints, and revolved in their minds the advantages of another revolution. The veterans, instead of being flattered by the advantageous distinction, were alarmed by the first steps of the emperor, which they considered as the presage of his future intentions. The recruits, with sullen reluctance, entered on his servants, whose labors were increased while his rewards were diminished by a covetous and unwarlike sovereign. The murmurs of the army swelled with impunity into seditious clamors, and the partial mutinies betrayed a spirit of discontent and disaffection that waited only for the slightest occasion to break out on every side into a general rebellion. To minds thus disposed, the occasion soon presented itself. The Empress Julia had experienced all the vicissitudes of fortune. From a humble station, she had been raised to greatness, only to taste the superior bitterness of an exalted rank. She was doomed to weep over the death of one of her sons, and over the life of the other. The cruel fate of Caracalla, though her good sense must have long taught her to expect it, awakened the feelings of a mother and of an empress. Notwithstanding the respectful civility expressed by the usurper towards the widow of Severus, she descended with a painful struggle into the condition of a subject, and soon withdrew herself by a voluntary death from the anxious and humiliating dependence. Julia Mysa, her sister, was ordered to leave the court and Antioch. She retired to Emesa with an immense fortune, the fruit of twenty years' labor, accompanied by her two daughters, Somaius and Mamaya, each of whom was a widow, and each had an only son. Bazianus, for that was the name of the son of Soimius, was consecrated to the honorable ministry of high priest of the son, and this holy vocation, embraced either from prudence or superstition, contributed to raise the Syrian youth to the empire of Rome. A numerous body of troops were stationed at Emesa, and, as the severe discipline of Macrinus had constrained them to pass the winter encamped, they were eager to revenge the cruelty of such unaccustomed hardships. The soldiers, who resorted in crowds to the Temple of the Sun, beheld with veneration and delight the elegant dress and figure of the young pontiff. They recognized, or thought they had recognized, the features of Caracalla, whose memory they now adored. The artful Mysa saw and cherished their rising partiality, and, readily sacrificing her daughter's reputation to the fortunes of her grandson, she insinuated that Bazianus was the natural son of their murdered sovereign. The sums distributed by her emissaries with a lavish hand silenced every objection, and the profusion sufficiently proved the affinity, or at least the resemblance of Bazianus, with the great original. The young Antoninus, for he had assumed and polluted that respectable name, was declared emperor by the troops of Emesa, asserted his hereditary right, and called aloud on the armies to follow the standard of a young and liberal prince who had taken up arms to revenge his father's death in the oppression of the military order. Whilst a conspiracy of women and eunuchs was concerted with prudence and conducted with rapid vigor, Macrinus, who by decisive motion might have crushed his infant enemy, floated between the opposite extremes of terror and security, which alike fixed him inactive at Antioch. 
a spirit of rebellion diffused itself through all the camps and garrisons of Syria. Successive detachments murdered their officers, and joined the party of the rebels, and the tardy restitution of military pay and privileges was imputed to the acknowledged weakness of Macrinus. At length he marched out of Antioch to meet the increasing and zealous army of the young pretender. His own troops seemed to take the field with faintness and reluctance, but in the heat of battle the Praetorian guards, almost by an involuntary impulse, asserted the superiority of their valor and discipline. The rebel ranks were broken. When the mother and grandmother of the Syrian prince, who, according to their eastern custom, had attended the army, threw themselves from their covered chariots, and by exciting the compassion of the soldiers, endeavored to animate their drooping courage. Antoninus himself, who in the rest of his life never acted like a man, in this important crisis of his fate approved himself a hero, mounted his horse, and, at the head of his rallied troops, charged, sword in hand, among the thickest of the enemy, whilst the eunuch, Ganyes, whose occupation had been confined to female cares and the soft luxury of Asia, displayed the talents of an able and experienced general. The battle still raged with doubtful violence, and Macrinus might have obtained the victory had he not betrayed his own calls by a shameful and precipitate flight. His cowardice served only to protract his life a few days, and to stamp deserved ignominy on his misfortunes. It is scarcely necessary to add that his son, Diadumenianus, was involved in the same fate. As soon as the stubborn Praetorians could be convinced that they fought for a prince who had basely deserted them, they surrendered to the conqueror. The contending parties of the Roman army, mingling tears of joy and tenderness, united under the banners of the imagined son of Caracalla, and the East acknowledged with pleasure the first emperor of Asiatic extraction. The letters of Macrinus had condescended to inform the Senate of the slight disturbance occasioned by an impostor in Syria, and a decree immediately passed declaring the rebel and his family public enemies. With a promise of pardon, however, to such of his deluded adherents as should merit it by an immediate return to their duty. During the twenty days that elapsed from the declaration to the victory of Antoninus, for in so short an interval was the fate of the Roman world decided, the capital and the provinces, more especially those of the east, were distracted with hopes and fears, agitated with tumult, and stained with a useless effusion of civil blood. Since, whosoever of the rivals prevailed in Syria must reign over the empire. The specious letters in which the young conqueror announced his victory to the obedient senate were filled with professions of virtue and moderation. The shining examples of Marcus and Augustus he should ever consider as his great rule of his administration, and he affected to dwell with pride on the striking resemblance of his own age and fortunes with those of Augustus, who, in the earliest youth, had revenged by a successful war the murder of his father. By adopting the style of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, son of Antoninus, grandson of Severus, he tacitly asserted his hereditary claim to empire. But, by assuming the tribunician and proconsular powers before they had been conferred on him by a decree of the Senate, he offended the delicacy of Roman prejudice. This new and injudicious violation of the Constitution was probably dictated either by the ignorance of Assyrian courtiers or the fierce disdain of his military followers. As the attention of the new emperor was diverted by the most trifling amusements, he wasted many months in his luxurious progress from Syria to Italy, passed at Nicomedia the first winter after his victory, and deferred till the ensuing summer his triumphal entry into the capital. A faithful picture, however, which preceded his arrival, and was placed by his immediate order over the altar of victory in the Senate House, conveyed to the Romans the just 
but unworthy resemblance of his person and manners. He was drawn in his sacerdotal robes of silk and gold, after the loose-flowing fashion of the Medes and Phoenicians. His head was covered with a lofty tiara. His numerous collars and bracelets were adorned with gems of inestimable value. His eyebrows were tinged with black, and his cheeks painted with an artificial red and white. The grave senators confessed with a sigh that, after having long experienced the stern tyranny of their own countrymen, Rome was at length humbled beneath the effeminate luxury of Oriental despotism. The sun was worshipped at Emesa under the name of Elagalibus, and under the form of a black conical stone, which, as it was universally believed, had fallen from heaven on that sacred place. To this protecting deity, Antoninus, not without some reason, ascribed his elevation to the throne. The display of superstitious gratitude was the only serious business of his reign. The triumph of the god of Emesa over all the religions of the earth was the great object of his zeal and vanity and the appellation of Elagalibus, for he presumed as pontiff and favorite to adopt that sacred name, was dearer to him than all the titles of imperial greatness. In a solemn procession through the streets of Rome, the way was stewed with gold dust. The black stone, set in precious gems, was placed on a chariot drawn by six milk-white horses richly comparisoned. The pious emperor held the reins, and, supported by his ministers, moved slowly backwards that he might perpetually enjoy the felicity of the divine presence. In a magnificent temple raised on the Palatine Mount, the sacrifices of the god Elagalibus were celebrated with every circumstance of cost and solemnity. The richest wines, the most extraordinary victims, and the rarest aromatics were profusely consumed on his altar. Around the altar, a chorus of Syrian damsels performed their lascivious dances to the rhythm of barbarian music, whilst the grave personages of the state and army, clothed in long Phoenician tunics, officiated in the meanest functions with affected zeal and secret indignation. End of chapter 6, part 2《a crowd of inferior deities attended in various stations the majesty of the god of Emesa, but his court was still imperfect, till a female of distinguished rank was admitted to his bed. Pallas had first been chosen for his consort, but it was dreaded that her warlike terrors might affright the soft delicacy of a Syrian deity. The moon, adored by the Africans under the name of Astarte, was deemed a more suitable companion for the sun. Her image, with the rich offerings of her temple, as a marriage portion, was transported with solemn pomp from Carthage to Rome, and the day of these mystic nuptials was a general festival in the capital and throughout the empire. A rational voluptuary adheres with invariable respect to the temperate dictates of nature, and improves the gratifications of sense by social intercourse, endearing connections, and the soft coloring of taste and imagination. But Elagalibus, I speak of the emperor of that name, corrupted by his youth, his country, and his fortune, abandoned himself to the grossest pleasures with ungoverned fury, 
and soon found disgust and satiety in the midst of his enjoyments. The inflammatory powers of art were summoned to his aid. The confused multitude of women, of wines, and of dishes, and the studied variety of attitudes and sauces, served to revive his languid appetites. New terms and new inventions in these sciences, the only ones cultivated and patronized by the monarch, signalized his reign, and transmitted his infamy to succeeding times. A capricious prodigality supplied the want of taste and elegance, and whilst Elagalibus lavished away the treasures of his people in the wildest extravagance, his own voice and that of his flatterers applauded a spirit and magnificence unknown to the tameness of his predecessors. To confound the order of seasons and climates, to sport with the passions and prejudices of his subjects, and to subvert every law of nature and decency, were in the number of his most delicious amusements. A long train of concubines, and a rapid succession of wives, among whom was a vestal virgin, ravished by force from her sacred asylum, were insufficient to satisfy the impotence of his passions. The master of the Roman world affected to copy the dress and manners of the female sex, preferred the distaff to the scepter, and dishonored the principal dignities of the empire by distributing them among his numerous lovers, one of whom was publicly invested with the title and authority of the emperors, or, as he more properly styled himself, of the empress's husband. It may seem probable the vices and follies of Elagalibus have been adorned by fancy and blackened by prejudice. Yet, confining ourselves to the public scenes displayed before the Roman people, and attested by grave and contemporary historians, their inexpressible infamy suppresses that of any other country or age. The license of an eastern monarch is secluded from the eye of curiosity by the inaccessible walls of the seraglio. The sentiments of honor and gallantry have introduced a refinement of pleasure, a regard for decency, and a respect for the public opinion into the modern courts of Europe. But the corrupt and opulent nobles of Rome gratified every vice that could be collected from the mighty conflux of nations and manners. Secure of impunity, careless of censure, they lived without restraint in the patient and humble society of their slaves and parasites. The emperor, in his turn, viewing every rank of his subjects with the same contemptuous indifference, asserted without control his sovereign privilege of lust and luxury. The most worthless of mankind are not afraid to condemn in others the same disorders which they allow in themselves, and can readily discover some nice differences of age, character, or station to justify the partial distinction. The licentious soldiers, who had raised to the throne the dissolute son of Caracalla, blushed at their ignominious choice, and turned with disgust from that monster, to contemplate with pleasure the opening virtues of his cousin Alexander, the son of Mamaya. The crafty Mysa, sensible that her grandson Elagalibus must inevitably destroy himself by his own vices, had provided another and surer support of her family. Embracing a favorable moment of fondness and devotion, she had persuaded the young emperor to adopt Alexander, and to invest him with the title of Caesar, that his own divine occupations might be no longer interrupted by the care of the earth. In the second rank, that amiable prince soon acquired the affections of the public, and excited the tyrant's jealousy, who resolved to terminate the dangerous competition, either by corrupting the manners, or by taking away the life of his rival. His arts proved unsuccessful, his vain designs were constantly discovered by his own loquacious folly, 
and disappointed by those virtuous and faithful subjects whom the prudence of Memaya had placed above the persons of her son. In a hasty sally of passion, Elagalibus resolved to execute by force what he had been unable to compass by fraud, and by a despotic sentence degraded his cousin from the rank and honors of Caesar. The message was received in the Senate with silence, and in the camp with fury. The Praetorian guards swore to protect Alexander, and to revenge the dishonored majesty of the throne. The tears and promises of the trembling Elagalibus, who only begged them to spare his life and to leave him in the possession of his beloved Heracles, diverted their just indignation, and they contented themselves with empowering their prefects to watch over the safety of Alexander and the conduct of the emperor. It was impossible that such a reconciliation should last, or that even the mean soul of Elagalibus could hold an empire on such humiliating terms of dependence. He soon attempted, by a dangerous experiment, to try the temper of the soldiers. The report of the death of Alexander, and the natural suspicion that he had been murdered, inflamed their passions into fury, and the tempest of the camp could only be appeased by the presence and authority of the popular youth. Provoked at this new instance of their affection for his cousin, and their contempt for his person, the emperor ventured to punish some of the leaders of the mutiny. His unseasonable severity proved instantly fatal to his minions, his mother, and himself. Elagalibus was massacred by the indignant Praetorians, his mutilated corpse dragged through the streets of the city and thrown into the Tiber. His memory was branded with eternal infamy by the Senate, and the justice of whose decree has been ratified by posterity. In the room of Elagalibus, his cousin Alexander was raised to the throne by the Praetorian guards. His relation to the family of Severus, whose name he assumed, was the same as that of his predecessor. His virtue and his danger had already endeared him to the Romans, and the eager liberality of the Senate conferred upon him in one day the various titles and powers of the imperial dignity. But, as Alexander was a modest and dutiful youth, and only seventeen years of age, the reins of government were in the hands of two women, his mother, Memaya, and of Mysa, his grandmother. After the death of the latter, who survived but a short time the elevation of Alexander, Memaya remained the sole regent of her son and of the empire. In every country and age, the wiser, or at least the stronger of the two sexes, has usurped the powers of the state, and confined the others to the cares and pleasures of domestic life. In hereditary monarchies, however, and especially in those of modern Europe, the gallant spirit of chivalry and the law of secession have accustomed us to allow a singular exception, and a woman is often acknowledged the absolute sovereign of a great kingdom, in which she would be deemed incapable of exercising the smallest employment, civil or military. But as the Roman emperors were still considered as the generals and magistrates of the republic, their wives and mothers although distinguished by the name of Augusta, were never associated to their personal honors, and a female reign would have appeared an inexpiable prodigy in the eyes of those primitive Romans, who married without love, or who loved without delicacy and respect. The haughty Agrippina aspired, indeed, to share the honors of the empire, which she had conferred on her son, but her mad ambition, detested by every citizen who felt for the dignity of Rome, was disappointed by the artful firmness of Seneca and Burrhus. The good sense, or the indifference of succeeding princes, restrained them from offending the prejudices of their subjects, 
and it was reserved for the profligate Elagabalus to disgrace the acts of the senate with the name of his mother Somaius, who was placed by the side of the consuls and subscribed as a regular member the decrees of the legislative assembly her more prudent sister Mimaya, declined the useless and odious prerogative and a solemn law was enacted excluding women forever from the senate and devoting to the infernal gods the head of the wretch by whom this sanction should be violated the substance not the pageantry of power was the object of Mamaya's manly ambition she maintained an absolute and lasting empire over the mind of her son and in his affection the mother could not brook a rival alexander with her consent married the daughter of a patrician but his respect for his father-in-law and love for the empress were inconsistent with the tenderness or interest of Mamaya. the patrician was executed on the ready accusation of treason and the wife of alexander was driven with ignominy from the palace and banished into africa notwithstanding this act of jealous cruelty as well as some instances of avarice with which Mamaya is charged the general tenor of her administration was equally for the benefit of her son and of the empire with the approbation of the senate she chose sixteen of the wisest and most virtuous senators as a perpetual council of state before whom every public business of moment was debated and determined the celebrated opian equally distinguished by his knowledge of and his respect for the laws of rome was at their head and the prudent firmness of this aristocracy restored order and authority to the government as soon as they had purged the city from foreign superstition and luxury the remains of the capricious tyranny of Elagabalus, they applied themselves to remove his worthless creatures from every department of the public administration and to supply their places with men of virtue and ability learning and the love of justice became the only recommendation for civil offices valor and the love of discipline the only qualification for military appointments but the most important care of Mamaya and her wise counsellors was to form the character of the young emperor on whose personal qualities the happiness or misery of the roman world must ultimately depend the fortunate soil assisted and even prevented the hand of cultivation an excellent understanding soon convinced alexander of the advantages of virtue the pleasure of knowledge and the necessity of labor a natural mildness and moderation of temper preserved him from the assaults of passion and the allurements of vice his unalterable regard for his mother and his esteem for the wise opian guarded his inexperienced youth from the poison of flattery the simple journal of his ordinary occupations exhibits a pleasing picture of an accomplished emperor and with some allowance for the difference of manners might well deserve the imitation of modern princes alexander rose early the first moments of the day were consecrated to private devotion and his domestic chapel was filled with the images of those heroes who by improving or reforming human life had deserved the grateful reverence of posterity but as he deemed the service of mankind the most acceptable worship of the gods the greatest part of his morning hours was employed in his council where he discussed public affairs and determined private causes with the patience and discretion above his years the dryness of business was relieved by the charms of literature and a portion of time was always set apart for his favorite studies of poetry history and philosophy the works of virgil and horace the republics of plato and cicero formed his taste enlarged his understanding and gave him the noblest ideas of man and government the exercises of the body seceded to those of the mind and alexander who was tall active and robust surpassed most of his equals in the gymnastic arts refreshed by the use of the bath 
and a slight dinner, he resumed with new vigor the business of the day, and till the hour of supper, the principal meal of the Romans, he was attended by his secretaries, with whom he read and answered the multitude of letters, memorials, and petitions that must have been addressed to the master of the greatest part of the world. His table was served with the most frugal simplicity, and whenever he was at liberty to consult his own inclination, the company consisted of a few select friends, men of learning and virtue, amongst whom Ulpian was constantly invited. Their conversation was familiar and instructive, and the pauses were occasionally enlivened by the recital of some pleasing composition, which supplied the place of dancers and comedians, and even gladiators, so frequently summoned to the tables of the rich and luxurious Romans. The dress of Alexander was plain and modest, his demeanor courteous and affable. At the proper hours his palace was open to all his subjects, but the voice of a crier was heard, as in the Eleusian mysteries, pronouncing the same salutary admonition. Let none enter these holy walls, unless he is conscious of a pure and innocent mind. Such a uniform tenor of life, which left not a moment for vice or folly, is a better proof of the wisdom and justice of Alexander's government than all the trifling details preserved in the compilations of Limpridius. Since the accession of Commodus, the Roman world had experienced, during a term of forty years, the successive and various vices of four tyrants. From the death of Elagalibus, it enjoyed an auspicious calm of thirteen years. The provinces, relieved from the oppressive taxes invented by Caracalla and his pretended son, flourished in peace and prosperity under the administration of magistrates, who were convinced by experience that to deserve the love of the subjects was their best and only method of obtaining the favor of their sovereign. While some gentle restraints were imposed on the innocent luxury of the Roman people, the price of provisions and the interest of money were reduced by the paternal care of Alexander, whose prudent liberality, without distressing the industrious, supplied the wants and amusements of the populace. The dignity, the freedom, the authority of the Senate was restored, and every virtuous senator might approach the person of the emperor without a fear and without a blush. The name of Antoninus, ennobled by the virtues of Pius and Marcus, had been communicated by adoption to the dissolute Verus, and by descent to the cruel Commodus. It became the honorable appellation of the sons of Severus, was bestowed on young Diadumenianus, and at length prostituted to the infamy of the high priest of Emesa. Alexander, though pressed by the studied and perhaps sincere importunity of the Senate, nobly refused the borrowed luster of a name, whilst in his whole conduct he labored to restore the glory and felicity of the age of the genuine Antonines. In the civil administration of Alexander, wisdom was enforced by power, and the people, sensible of the public felicity, repaid their benefactor with their love and gratitude. There still remained a greater, a more necessary, but more difficult enterprise, the reformation of the military order, whose interest and temper, confirmed by long impunity, rendered them impatient of the restraints of discipline, and careless of the blessings of public tranquility. On the execution of his design, the emperor affected to display his love and to conceal his fear of the army. The most rigid economy in every other branch of the administration supplied a fund of gold and silver for the ordinary pay and the extraordinary rewards of the troops. In their marches, he relaxed the severe obligation of carrying seventeen days' provisions on their shoulders. Ample magazines were formed along the public roads, and as soon as they entered the enemy's country, a numerous train of mules and camels waited on their haughty laziness. As Alexander despaired of correcting the luxury of his soldiers, 
he attempted, at least, to direct it to objects of martial pomp and ornament. Fine horses, splendid armor, and shields enriched with silver and gold. He shared whatever fatigues he was obliged to impose, visited, in person, the sick and wounded, preserved an exact register of their services and his own gratitude, and expressed, on every occasion, the warmest regard for a body of men whose welfare, as he affected to declare, was so closely connected with that of the state. By the most gentle arts he labored to inspire the fierce multitude with a sense of duty, and to restore at least a faint image of that discipline to which the Romans owed their empire over so many other nations, as warlike and more powerful than themselves. But his prudence was vain, his courage fatal, and the attempt towards a reformation served only to inflame the ills it was meant to cure. The Praetorian guards were attached to the youth of Alexander. They loved him as a tender pupil, whom they had saved from a tyrant's fury and placed on the imperial throne. That amiable prince was sensible of the obligation, but, as his gratitude was restrained within the limits of reason and justice, they soon were more dissatisfied with the virtues of Alexander than they had ever been with the vices of Elagalibus. Their prefect, the wise Ulpian, was a friend of the laws and of the people. He was considered as the enemy of the soldiers, and his pernicious counsels, every scheme of reformation was imputed. Some trifling accident blew up their discontent into a furious mutiny, and a civil war raged during three days in Rome, whilst the life of that excellent minister was defended by the grateful people. Terrified at length by the sight of some houses in flames, and by the threats of a general conflagration, the people yielded with a sigh, and left the virtuous but unfortunate Ulpian to his fate. He was pursued into the imperial palace, and massacred at the feet of his master, who vainly strove to cover him with the purple, and to obtain his pardon from the inexorable soldiers. Such was the deplorable weakness of government, that the emperor was unable to revenge his murdered friend and his insulted dignity, without stooping to the arts of patience and dissimulation. Apagathus, the principal leader of the mutiny, was removed from Rome by the honorable employment of prefect of Egypt. From that high rank he was gently degraded to the government of Crete, and when, at length, his popularity among the guards was effaced by time and absence, Alexander ventured to inflict the tardy but deserved punishment of his crimes. Under the reign of a just and virtuous prince, the tyranny of the army threatened with instant death his most faithful ministers, who were suspected of an intention to correct their intolerable disorders. The historian, Dion Cassius, had commanded the Pannonian legions with the spirit of ancient discipline. Their brethren of Rome, embracing the common cause of military license, demanded the head of the reformer. Alexander, however, instead of yielding to their seditious clamors, showed a just sense of his merit and services by appointing him his colleague in the consulship and defraying from his own treasury the expense of that vain dignity. But, as it was justly apprehended, that if the soldiers beheld him with the ensigns of his office, they would revenge the insult in his blood, the nominal first magistrate of the state retired, by the emperor's advice, from the city, and spent the greatest part of his consulship at his villas in Campania. End of chapter 6, part 3. Chapter 6, part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The lenity of the emperor confirmed the insolence of the troops, 
the legions imitated the example of the guards and defended the prerogative of licentiousness with the same furious obstinacy the administration of alexander was an unavailing struggle against the corruption of his age in illyricum in mauritania in armenia in mesopotamia in germany fresh mutinies perpetually broke out his officers were murdered his authority was insulted and his life at last sacrificed to the fierce discontents of the army one particular fact well deserves to be recorded as it illustrates the manners of the troops and exhibits a singular instance of their return to a sense of duty and obedience whilst the emperor lay at antioch in his persian expedition the particulars of which we shall hereafter relate the punishment of some soldiers who had been discovered in the baths of women excited a sedition in the legion to which they belonged alexander ascended his tribunal and with a modest firmness represented to the armed multitude the absolute necessity as well as his inflexible resolution of correcting the vices introduced by his impure predecessor and of maintaining the discipline which could not be relaxed without the ruin of the roman name and empire their clamors interrupted his mild expostulation reserve your shouts said the undaunted emperor till you take the field against the persians the germans and the sarmatians be silent in the presence of your sovereign and benefactor who bestows upon you the corn the clothing and the money of the provinces be silent or i shall no longer style you soldiers but citizens if those indeed who disclaim the laws of rome deserve to be ranked among the meanest of the people his menaces inflamed the fury of the legion and their brandished arms already threatened his person your courage resumed the intrepid alexander would be more nobly displayed in the field of battle me you may destroy you cannot intimidate and the severe justice of the republic would punish your crime and revenge my death the legion still persisted in clamorous sedition when the emperor pronounced with a loud voice the decisive sentence citizens lay down your arms and depart in peace to your respective habitations the tempest was instantly appeased the soldiers filled with grief and shame silently confessed the justice of their punishment and the power of discipline yielded up their arms and military ensigns and retired in confusion not to their camp but to the several inns of the city alexander enjoyed during thirty days the edifying spectacle of their repentance nor did he restore them to their former rank in the army till he had punished with death those tribunes whose connivance had occasioned the mutiny the grateful legion served the emperor whilst living and revenged him when dead the resolutions of the multitude generally depend on a moment and the caprice of passion might equally determine the seditious legion to lay down their arms at the emperor's feet or to plunge them into his breast perhaps if this singular transaction had been investigated by the penetration of a philosopher we should discover the secret causes which on that occasion authorized the boldness of the prince and commanded the obedience of the troops and perhaps if it had been related by a judicious historian we should find this action worthy of caesar himself reduced nearer to the level of probability and the common standard of the character of alexander severus the abilities of that amiable prince seems to have been inadequate to the difficulties of his situation the firmness of his conduct inferior to the purity of his intentions his virtues as well as the vices of alagalibus contracted a tincture of weakness and effeminacy from the soft climate of syria of which he was a native 
though he blushed at his foreign origin, and listened with a vain complacency to the flattering genealogists who derived his race from the ancient stock of Roman nobility. The pride and avarice of his mother cast a shade on the glories of his reign, and by exacting from his riper years the same dutiful obedience which she had justly claimed from his inexperienced youth, Mimaya exposed to public ridicule both her son's character and her own. The fatigues of the Persian War irritated the military discontent. The unsuccessful event degraded the reputation of the emperor as a general and even as a soldier. Every cause prepared, and every circumstance hastened a revolution which distracted the Roman Empire with a long series of intestine calamities. The dissolute tyranny of Commodus, the civil wars occasioned by his death, and the new maxims of policy introduced by the House of Severus, had all contributed to increase the dangerous power of the army, and to obliterate the faint image of laws and liberty which still impressed on the minds of the Romans. This internal change, which undermined the foundations of the empire, we have endeavored to explain with some degree of order and perspicuity. The personal characters of the emperors, their victories, laws, follies, and fortunes, can interest us no further than as they are connected with the general history of the decline and fall of the monarchy. Our constant attention to that great object will not suffer us to overlook a most important edict of Antoninus Caracalla, which communicated to all free inhabitants of the empire the name and privileges of Roman citizens. His unbounded liberality flowed not, however, from the sentiments of a generous mind. It was the sordid result of avarice, and will naturally be illustrated by some observations on the finances of that state, from the victorious ages of the commonwealth to the reign of Alexander Severus. The siege of Veii in Tuscany, the first considerable enterprise of the Romans, was protracted to the tenth year, much less by the strength of the place than by the unskillfulness of the besiegers. The unaccustomed hardships of so many winter campaigns, at the distance of near twenty miles from home, acquired more than common encouragements, and the Senate wisely prevented the clamors of the people, by the institution of a regular pay for the soldiers, which was levied by a general tribute, assessed according to the equitable proportion on the property of the citizens. During more than two hundred years after the conquest of Veii, the victories of the Republic added less to the wealth than to the power of Rome. The states of Italy pay their tribute in military service only, and the vast force both by sea and land, which was exerted in the Punic Wars, was maintained at the expense of the Romans themselves. That high-spirited people, such as often the generous enthusiasm of freedom, cheerfully submitted to the most excessive but voluntary burdens, in the just confidence that they should speedily enjoy the rich harvest of their labors. Their expectations were not disappointed. In the course of a few years the riches of Syracuse, of Carthage, of Macedonia, and of Asia, were brought in triumph to Rome. The treasures of Perseus alone amounted to near two million sterling, and the Roman people, the sovereign of so many nations, was forever delivered from the weight of taxes. The increasing revenue of the provinces was found sufficient to defray the ordinary establishment of war and government, and the superfluous mass of gold and silver was deposited in the temple of Saturn, and reserved for any unforeseen emergency of the state. History has never, perhaps, suffered a greater or more irreparable injury than in the loss of that curious register bequeathed by Augustus to the Senate, in which that experienced prince so accurately balanced the revenues and expenses of the Roman Empire. 
Deprived of this clear and comprehensive estimate, we are reduced to collect a few imperfect hints from such of the ancients as have accidentally turned aside from the splendid to the more useful parts of history. We are informed that, by the conquests of Pompeii, the tributes of Asia were raised from fifty to one hundred and thirty-five millions of drachms, or about four millions and one-half of sterling. Under the last and most indolent of the Ptolemies, the revenue of Egypt is said to have amounted twelve thousand five hundred talents, a sum equivalent to more than two millions and a half of our money, but which was afterwards considerably improved by the more exact economy of the Romans, and the increase of trade of Ethiopia and India. Gaul was enriched by rapine, as Egypt was by commerce, and the tributes of those two great provinces have been compared as nearly equal to each other in value. The ten thousand Euboic or Phoenician talents, about four million sterling, which vanquished Carthage, was condemned to pay within a term of fifty years, were a slight acknowledgment to the superiority of Rome, and cannot bear the least proportion with the taxes afterwards raised both on the lands and on the persons of the inhabitants, when the fertile coast of Africa was reduced into a province. Spain, by a very singular fatality, was the Peru and Mexico of the Old World. The discovery of the rich western continent by the Phoenicians, and the oppression of the simple natives, who were compelled to labor in their own mines for the benefit of strangers, form an exact type of the more recent history of Spanish America. The Phoenicians were acquainted only with the seacoast of Spain. Avarice, as well as ambition, carried the arms of Rome and Carthage into the heart of the country, and almost every part of the soil was found pregnant with copper, silver, and gold. Mention is made of a mine near Carthagena, which yielded every day 25,000 drachms of silver, or about 300,000 pounds a year. 20,000 pounds weight of gold was annually received from the provinces of Asturia, Galicia, and Lusitania. We want both leisure and materials to pursue this curious inquiry through the many potent states which were annihilated in the Roman Empire. Some notion, however, may be formed of the revenue of the provinces, where considerable wealth had been deposited by nature, or collected by man, if we observe the severe attention that was directed to the abodes of solitude and sterility. Augustus once received a petition from the inhabitants of Gyarus, humbly praying that they may be relieved from one-third of their excessive impositions. Their whole tax amounted indeed to no more than 150 drachms, or about five pounds. But Gyarus was a little island, or rather a rock, in the Aegean Sea, destitute of fresh water and every necessity of life, and inhabited by only a few wretched fishermen. From the faint glimmerings of such doubtful and scattered lights, we should be inclined to believe, first, that, with every fair allowance for the difference of times and circumstances, the general income of the Roman provinces could seldom amount to less than fifteen or twenty millions of our money, and, secondly, that so ample a revenue must have been fully adequate to all the expenses of the moderate government instituted by Augustus, whose court was the modest family of a private senator, and whose military establishment was calculated for the defense of the frontiers without any aspiring views of conquest, or any serious apprehension of a foreign invasion. Notwithstanding the seeming probability of both these conclusions, the latter of them at least is positively disowned by the language and conduct of Augustus. It is not easy to determine whether, on this occasion, he acted as the common father of the Roman world, or as the oppressor of liberty, whether he wished to relieve the provinces, 
or to impoverish the Senate and the equestrian order. But no sooner had he assumed the reins of government than he frequently intimated the insufficiency of the tribunes and the necessity of throwing an equitable proportion of the public burden upon Rome and Italy. In the prosecution of this unpopular design, he advanced, however, by cautious and well-weighted steps. The introduction of customs was followed by the establishment of an excise, and the scheme of taxation was compelled by an artful assessment on the real and personal property of the Roman citizens, who had been exempted from any kind of contribution above a century and a half. 1. In a great empire, like that of Rome, a natural balance of money must have gradually established itself. It had already been observed that, as the wealth of the provinces was attracted to the capital by the strong hand of conquest and power, so a considerable part of it was restored to the industrious provinces by the gentle influence of commerce and arts. In the reign of Augustus and his successors, duties were imposed on every kind of merchandise, which, through a thousand channels, flowed to the great center of opulence and luxury. In whatsoever manner the law was expressed, it was the Roman purchaser and not the provincial merchant who paid the tax. The rate of the customs varied from the eighth to the fortieth part of the value of the commodity, and we have a right to suppose that the variation was directed by the unalterable maximums of policy, that a higher duty was fixed on the articles of luxury than on those of necessity, and that the productions raised or manufactured by the labor of the subjects of the empire were treated with more indulgence than was shown to the pernicious or at least the unpopular commerce of Arabia and India. There is still extant a long but imperfect catalogue of eastern commodities. About the time of Alexander Severus, were subject to the payment of duties, cinnamon, myrrh, pepper, ginger, and the whole tribe of aromatics, a great variety of precious stones, among which the diamond was the most remarkable for its price, and the emerald for its beauty. Parthian and Babylonian leather, cottons, silks, both raw and manufactured, ebony, ivory, and eunuchs. We may observe that the use and value of those infeminate slaves gradually rose with the decline of the empire. 2. The excise, introduced by Augustus after the civil wars, was extremely moderate, but it was general. It seldom exceeded one per cent, but it comprehended whatever was sold in the markets or by public auction, from the most considerable purchases of land and houses to those minute objects which can only derive a value from their infinite multitude and daily consumption. Such a tax, as it affects the body of the people, has ever been the occasion of clamor and discontent. An emperor, well acquainted with the wants and resources of the state, was obliged to declare, by a popular edict, that the support of the army depended, in a great measure, on the produce of the excise. 3. When Augustus resolved to establish a permanent military force for the defense of his government against foreign and domestic enemies, he instituted a peculiar treasury for the pay of the soldiers, the rewards of the veterans, and the extraordinary expenses of war. The ample revenue of the excise, though peculiarly apportioned to the uses, was found inadequate. To supply the deficiency, the emperor suggested a new tax of 5% on all legacies and inheritances, but the nobles of Rome were more tenacious of property than of freedom. Their indignant murmurs were received by Augustus with his usual temper. He candidly referred the whole business to the Senate, and exhorted them to provide for the public service by some other expedient of a less odious nature. They were divided and perplexed. He insinuated to them that their obstinacy would oblige him to propose a general land tax and capitation. They acquiesced in silence. 
The new imposition on legacies and inheritances was, however, mitigated by some restrictions. It did not take place unless the object was of a certain value, most probably a fifty or a hundred pieces of gold. Nor can it be exacted from the nearest kin on the father's side. When the rights of nature and property were thus secured, it seemed reasonable that a stranger or a distant relation, who acquired an unexpected acquisition of fortune, should cheerfully resign a twentieth part of it for the benefit of the state. Such a tax, plentiful as it must prove in every wealthy community, was most happily suited to the situation of the Romans, who could frame their arbitrary wills according to the dictates of reason or caprice without any restraint from the modern fetters of entails and settlements. From various causes, the partiality of paternal affection often lost its influence over the stern patriots of the commonwealth and the dissolute nobles of the empire, and if the father bequeathed to a son a fourth part of his estate, he removed all grounds of legal complaint. But a rich, childless old man was a domestic tyrant, and his power increased with his years and infirmities. A servile crowd, in which he frequently reckoned praetors and consuls, courted his smiles, pampered his avarice, and applauded his follies, served his passions, and waited with impatience for his death. The arts of attendance and flattery were formed into a most lucrative science, and those who professed it acquired a peculiar appellation, and the whole city, according to the lively descriptions of satire, were divided into two parties, the hunters and their game. Yet while so many unjust and extravagant wills were every day dictated with cunning and subscribed by folly, a few were the result of rational esteem and virtuous gratitude. Cicero, who had so often defended the lives and fortunes of his fellow citizens, was rewarded with legacies to the amount of 170,000 pounds. Nor do the friends of the younger Pliny seem to have been less generous to that amiable orator. Whatever was the motive of the testator, the treasury claimed without distinction the twentieth part of his estate, and in the course of two or three generations the whole property of the subject must have gradually passed through the coffers of the state. In the first and golden years of the reign of Nero, that prince, from a desire of popularity, and perhaps from a blind impulse of benevolence, conceived a wish of abolishing the oppression of the customs and excise. The wisest senators applauded his magnanimity, but they diverted him from the execution of a design which would have dissolved the strength and resources of the republic. Had it indeed been possible to realize this dream of fancy, such princes as Trajan and the Antonines would surely have embraced with ardor the glorious opportunity of conferring so signal of obligation on mankind. Satisfied, however, with alleviating the public burden, they attempted not to remove it. The mildness and precision of their laws ascertained the rule and measure of taxation, and protected the subject of every rank against arbitrary interpretations, antiquated claims, and the insolent vexation of the farmers of the revenue. For it is somewhat singular that, in every age, the best and wisest of the Roman governors persevered in this pernicious method of collecting the principal branches, at least of the excise and customs. The sentiments, and indeed the situation of Caracalla, were very different from those of the Antonines. Inattentive, or rather averse to the welfare of his people, he found himself under the necessity of gratifying the insatiate avarice which he had excited in the army. Of the several impositions introduced by Augustus, the twentieth on inheritances and the legacies was the most fruitful as well as the most comprehensive. As its influence was not confined to Rome or Italy, the produce continually increased with the gradual extension of the Roman city. The new citizens, though charged on equal terms with the payment of new taxes which had not affected them as subjects, 
derived an ample compensation from the rank they obtained, the privileges they acquired, and the fair prospect of honors and fortune which was thrown open to their ambition. But the favor which implied a distinction was lost in the prodigality of Caracalla, and the reluctant provincials were compelled to assume the vain title and real obligations of Roman citizens. Nor was the rapacious son of Severus contented with such a measure of taxation as had appeared sufficient to his moderate predecessors. Instead of a twentieth, he exacted a tenth of all legacies and inheritances. And during his reign, for the ancient proportion was restored after his death, he crushed alike every part of the empire under the weight of his iron scepter. When all the provincials became liable to the peculiar impositions of Roman citizens, they seemed to acquire a legal exemption from the tributes which they had paid in their former conditions of subjects. Such were not the maxims of government adapted by Caracalla and his pretended son. The old, as well as the new taxes, were, at the same time, levied in the provinces. It was reserved for the virtue of Alexander to relieve them in a great measure from this intolerable grievance by reducing the tributes to a thirteenth part of the sum exacted at the time of his accession. It is impossible to conjecture the motive that engaged him to spare so trifling a remnant of the public evil, but the noxious weed, which had not been totally eradicated, again sprang up with the most luxuriant growth, and in the succeeding age darkened the Roman world with its deadly shade. In the course of this history we shall be too often summoned to explain the land tax, the capitation, and the heavy contributions of corn, wine, oil, and meat which were exacted from the provinces for the use of the court, the army, and the capital. As long as Rome and Italy were respected as the center of government, a national spirit was preserved by the ancient and insensibly imbibed by the adopted citizens. The principal commands of the army were filled by men who had received a liberal education and were well instructed in the advantages of laws and letters, and who had risen by equal steps through the regular succession of civil and military honors. To their influence and example we may partly ascribe the modest obedience of the legions during the first two centuries of the imperial history. But when the last enclosure of the Roman constitution was trampled down by Caracalla, the separation of possessions gradually seceded to the division of ranks. The more polished citizens of the internal provinces were alone qualified to act as lawyers and magistrates. The rougher trade of arms were abandoned to the peasants and barbarians of the frontiers, who knew no country but their camp, no science but that of war, no civil laws, and scarcely those of military discipline. With bloody hands, savage manners, and desperate resolutions, they sometimes guarded, but more oftener subverted, the throne of the emperors. End of chapter 6, part 4。At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.